two interesting people have just left. <laughs> I love that insult. That is, it's it. such, such a quality insult. I yeah. love, I love, I love really, I love insults like that. You have to get like you. Some people will won't get it. That's what makes it better. So it's like, <laughs> you have to uh, think about it a little bit. Yeah, it's good. God, they were doing those insults back in the day, though, Donald. This is 500 AD. Yeah. So you know, Marcus, Marcus was long dead by this time. He was gone. Yeah, no, people were quite good at insults. I mean, there must be some good insults in in Roman poetry. I would have well, thought. Isn't the famous story about the guy that walks into a hairdresser and the hairdresser says, "How would you like your haircut?" and the answer is in silence. That's, <laughs> really? that's Cicero. Is that? Oh yeah, it's Cicero. Cicero yeah. That joke about how do you want your haircut in silence? It's a Roman <laughs> joke. But so it's a would, Roman joke, but it's applicable to like you know. How would you like to like, speak to your mother-in-law through a medium? Oh, what? Who said that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Manning or somebody like that. <laughs> when did um, when did mirrors get like invented? The Romans had mirrors, but it yeah. was like polished, polished, metal. polished metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rubbish mirrors. Oh. How accurate was it? Like, was it good? Or you like, do you, do you, do you like a head like a massive fish or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or if you were, or if you were like really ugly, you were just like, oh yeah, I look uh, pretty nice. <laughs> oh my god! Because I was thinking this the other day. When was the last time you didn't look in the mirror for like a time for a consistent time? Not for ages. The weird thing in this flat yes, is it, Yeah, but in my bedroom, there are no mirrors. So if I oh, want really? to do my makeup, I have to stand in the hall and just like, hi, Donald. I'm just like, you know, there in my bra, just like, oh, I'm just doing my mascara. <laughs> but you, but the thing is, right, if you don't look at yourself in the mirror for like a week and then you look at yourself again, you might see someone different. Yeah. I'm going to try that. Different person. Speak quite hard, though. There's a quote in Marcus Aurelius. It reminds me of this thing in Marcus Aurelius where he says, this body is not the same one to which your mother gave birth. Which is a, a weird thing to say. Also, that's like an obvious thing to say. I know. You, ha you have like changed since you were a baby. Yeah. But it's not like, it's a strange that like, obviously that's, those are the thoughts of someone that has too much time on his hands. In a way. Oh my God. That is a weird thought to think about, isn't it? Why is he thinking about that? Like what's that, what, what, what's that mean to him? I don't know. I think it could be opium related. Like, yeah. he was you love a bit of opium, probably. Opium. Do you know what you'd love? Do you know what you might love, Don? You might hate it. There's I'm a BBC. A piece of opium. No. <laughs> the, the BBC Radio 4 did a thing on Marcus Aurelius last week. No, I heard about that. Everyone tells me about these things. Honestly, it's a, honestly, it'll, it'll drive you mad. The rubbish. Well, one person sticking up for Marcus, the other people are saying, like, you know, they're going against him. Saying some stuff about him that's not true, as like Don wouldn't stand. No, so I, I, I didn't hear it because my, my dad said that it was Simon Goldhill, Edith Hall, and Angie Hobbs. Simon Goldhill oh, taught God. me at Cambridge. <laughs> Simon, who was sticking up for Marcus? The woman, the woman, the lady. I don't know who. I don't know who she was. Probably Edith Hall. Probably Edith Hall. No, Edith Hall doesn't. Oh, like, like oh so maybe stories. it was Angie Hobbs then, because she's a philosopher. Maybe Angie Hobbs. Like, one of them. One of them said, right. If he didn't want to be like famous, why did he write the book to get published? I was like, he didn't write the book to get published. The, like all, like all the scholars agree that it looks like it was never intended for publication. Right. Okay. For a bunch mm. of reasons. So one is he kind of implicitly insults famous people in it. Another one is he references personal stuff that other people wouldn't know about. And another thing is he kind of complains about his role as emperor. And says controversial things. So there's a bunch of things in it that make it look like he couldn't have meant that to be published. Hang on, that just sounds like a, a modern day, a modern day <laughs> political memoir. Sorry, yeah. insult people. Oh, check. 
lots yeah. of personal revelations. Yeah. Check. Complain about being in power. Check. Sounds like it was destined for publication. Who was his agent? He says things like, though, like, oh, you know that letter that such and such wrote to such and such? And you're like, well, it doesn't mean anything. And, like, you know, it, it, would, it wouldn't mean anything to him. Mm. Um, so, like, the, yeah, I don't, like, nobody thinks it was meant for publication. He could be a marketing genius. Marketing Marcus Aurelius. He might have been. Yeah, like, he may have been way ahead of his time. Maybe like. you went back in time and were his publisher. <laughs> You step through a wormhole in the flat in Athens. Why me? I'd be rubbish at it. I'm not very good at it. No, you'd be no. amazing. You'd be an amazing publicist because, like, now. From Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Imagine Scott. This is a Scott thing. Imagine you went back in time, Scott, like, and you could go you, anywhere. You could, yeah. You're like, no, you're like a peasant, right? But you know everything from modern society. And you could just sort of like jostle up to Roman senators and say, do you know that if you just do this and that, like, do you know this is how lightning works and stuff like that? And everyone would think you're some kind of wizard or whatever, right? Because you have all this knowledge from the future. So what, what would you tell them? Like, what would you go, check this out? Like... Um, what would I tell them? Hmm. Uh, I would try and do electricity, I would. Yeah. Yeah. Would you, would you tell them where America is? <laughs> do you know there's this place called America? Right, yeah. and it's like... And they've got tomatoes, not. and you can make pizzas got, a thousand years early. They've got turkeys, they've got, like, you wouldn't believe it. Imagine if they did go over to America, though. That would be, that would be wild, wouldn't it? That would have changed the world. They would have, who would have, who would have they been fighting? The Indians. Yeah. They, they later on. Yeah. But the Vikings, like, went to Canada or America. Did they? Yeah. Oh, fair play. They would have, on those boats, on the long boats. Yeah, but they didn't like colonize it or whatever. Mm. Like, just had a few, did did a few little raids. Yeah, they went raids that came back again. Raiding. They loved a raid, didn't they? Like they loved their like. I, th I think there was a DNA thing done in the in the UK, and it showed that there wasn't as much Viking DNA as they thought for all the raids and stuff they did. Hmm. Right. They would they were obviously raping a lot of people as well, weren't they? they I can't that's where all the redheads come from. Well, there aren't that many redheads, so just not many rapes, basically. Yeah, basically. They, they weren't as bad as people thought. <laughs> I've got a little bit ginger. I used to, it's gone white now. I used to be a little bit ginger and then it went white. A bit, and I've got blue eyes, which is not normal for a Celt. Not like you're, you're a Celt. Not that many Celts have got blue eyes, have they, Scott? Is that right? No. Celts usually have brown eyes. Brown eyes. Or green. Brown. Yeah, brown and green, yeah. Uh, there's definitely a difference. I think like English people are also, I think the, English people are generally taller than the Celts as well, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And then they got the, like the, the Dutch are like average height six for two. Yeah, the Dutch mm. are really really tall. Like, what's going on there? What happened there? Like were they all just like yeah we're tall we'll just go one place? Like why why did it happen? Do you know what I mean like is it a? Yeah, I wonder why actually, but it is true. Like very statuesque. Yeah. Well, the Germania was Marcus Aurelius, I reckon, would have been. Was he like six foot or something? Was he tall? I don't know. We don't know how tall he was. I've got a theory that he might have been blonde. Because hmm. yeah. his son was blonde and hit Commodus. And, and Commodus, the statues, like, looked very, very similar to Marcus. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, but he looks a lot like his dad and he's blonde. So maybe his dad was blonde as well. Hmm. Mm. That would be interesting if he's blonde. Could have been like a. But what, why was there blonde people in in the southern Mediterranean? Was there, there blonde people in 
Well, they they come they come from the they the blonde people originate. Actually, I don't know what I'm on about, but a lot of Swedish people are blonde, don't they? A lot but of the non. Then the thing about the Roman Empire is that it, at the time of Marcus was that it was it, it you know encompassed like all most of, Europe. of Europe. So you know you would have had Roman citizens who were mi- married to mixing with people from France, from Gaul, from from Britain as well. Actually, obviously as well. So yeah, there are quite a few Roman emperors that were blonde mm. allegedly and had blue eyes. It seems kind of surprising, but we're told in a number of histories they they, mm-hmm. they had uh, blonde hair. They used to Lucius Verus, his uh, uh, adopted brother, was blonde, and he said they say uh, he sprinkled gold dust in his hair. That's how much <laughs> a rock star he was. <laughs> yeah, gold, nice. gold dust in his He's hair to make it sparkle. Nice, like uh, <laughs> glam rocker. I do wonder what I do wonder what like the pre-night out routine was in Rome. Like what were they doing? Like you know over here you you know pre-drinks and stuff. What were they doing over there? Drinking stuff in the hair. Pre yeah, uh, how were they preloading? They were definitely preloading with like watery wine. Well, Lucius Ferris had this massive goblet made, which we're told defies the ability of any human to consume, right? Which makes it sound <laughs> like it was a competition. And it was like a yard of ale or something like that. <laughs> well, so it's like he had this big thing. He was, I bet you can't finish this. Like, nice. Yeah, he's like a bit of a frat boy. Like, yeah. he, uh, you know, he likes to party. I told you about that amazing goblet, Greek goblet, which I, I should have put in the presentation yeah. last week. But um, it's got like on the outside of the goblet, it's got like pictures of a party, pictures of symposium. So like guys drinking, like the flute girls playing their flutes um you know people just having a great time and like you know like little bottles of wine and everything and in the in the bottom of the cup so basically the idea is like when you finished your wine you look there's another picture in the bottom of the cup and the picture in the bottom of the cup is of a guy leaning over and being sick into a bucket which is being held for him by a flute girl and it's just basically saying like if you finish too much wine this is what's going to happen to you all right like it they this, definitely got hammered. They got hammered. You've seen like, that one. There's a thing called the Lycurgus club, uh, cup that's made of weird, this glass that changes colour in different lights. And when oh, okay. you put the wine in it, it changes oh, nice. between red and green. It's amazing. It's in the British Museum. Hmm. Like, they still don't know exactly how they managed to manufacture <laughs> the glass. They basically loved the sesh. They loved going out drinking. Yeah, They loved it. Basically. They love the sesh. They, they love the sesh. Like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Anybody who says that they didn't, like, it's amazing they got any, like, philosophy written or, like, like you know, built any statues, temples, conquered anywhere, because they were, like, on the lash, like, pretty oh, much permanently. You know, like, so people say Socrates was executed because he asked too many questions of people, like, and he kind of upset the, like, the political and political power and stuff like that. But there are lots of reasons he was executed. And one of them was that his lover or friend, Alcibiades, allegedly got drunk one night. And there are these statues in, uh, in Greece called Herms, which are, are like a, a column with a, a bust on top. It's just uh-huh. the head on top uh-huh. and also the genitals. <laughs> so it's just like a column with a penis with a head and, and a, a head on top, right? And apparently Alcibiades and his friends got drunk and got a chisel and went around and knocked all the willies off, <laughs> right? And because these were religious things and they took probably a long time to make them, like <laughs> people were really, really angry about this. <laughs> it was like a big scandal. 
And that's like one of the reasons that they executed Socrates was because his his boyfriend got drunk and chiseled off all the willies on the statues. Socrates, you cut all the cocks off, you're going to die. <laughs> well, that's a good way to die, actually. Not bad. I wish that was the official story. But Scott, oh, Scott, I thought you were going to say, that's a good segue into tonight's presentation about impermanence. Ah, yeah, it is impermanence. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's definitely in there. What are we talking about today in full end, Donald? Let's know. Let the gang know you. What are we we talking about tonight? We're going to talk about death, loss, joy, the transience of all material things, Scott, Mm. the river of time, the ancient mystery uh, cult uh, of the Eleusinian mysteries, like the myth of the goddess Demeter and Persephone. Mm. And I'm, I'm going to show you a picture of myself at the gates of hell. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. so... Good God, you're the, what's going on here? Okay. What's going on? Like, we're, we're going to hell. I'm in. Yeah, you're going to need your... You're going to definitely need your Coca-Cola. Okay. <laughs> I'm ready, man. I'm strapped in. Really? Oh, God, well, like I'd awesome. my slide. Okay. Um, Actually, I need, to, I need to share with you all. Mm. How's everyone doing, by the way, in the chat? How are you all doing? Good. Yeah, we're good. Okay, can you do it now? How about the, how about the challenges from last week? You were like challenging people to do some of those. Oh yeah. McDonald's. Oh, someone did the Donald. Someone did your challenge about it wasn't a banana, but it was a turtle toy. Katie. Oh really? Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah cool. she's dragging the little turtle uh, in uh, in the park. That is so cool. Oh my god! Yeah. Well done to her. There's a video. Like, there's a video. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll show you a video. Yeah. You've got a video of it? Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Nice one. Cool. Well Katie, done. Katie O'Connor, the ghost. Katie, for you. That's brilliant. Woo! Yeah, I can go. Anyone else do anything? Let me know. Yeah. Well, I've got some more exercises for you today at the end. Yeah, so, we'll do some more. Okay, impermanence and the here and now. We're going to talk about Scott. Like, so will we commence? You have to say go. We go, 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 go. You count me in. So, Lalia, like, I don't know if we need to do anything. You've all met me now. We've we've met Lalia. Yeah. Yeah. And me, we've met. Right. So, we're going to talk about impermanence in philosophy, impermanence in the classics. And then we're going to talk about some meditation techniques to do with stoicism, Mm -hmm. actually, also to do with modern psychotherapy. So, I'm start by talking about a lot about philosophy. And I'm going to get into it by talking about ancient mythology. So we're going to talk about the legend of the goddess Demeter, who's the goddess really of agriculture, of corn, like barley, of the harvest. She's also called Sito, which means she of the grain, like the goddess of the harvest. Zeus is her brother, but he's also the father of her daughter, Persephone, because the Greek gods are kind of incestuous like that. And her name possibly meant Earth Mother or Grandmother. The the meter or meter bit seems to mean mother. And she also, uh, in addition to being responsible for agriculture, so she taught humans how to farm, but she also taught them religious ceremonies based around agriculture and the cycles of nature. And so her rites and her symbolism, which are very ancient, have to do with fertility and childbirth or with mourning and death. 
Check that out. So that's... Oh my God. Do you like it? I'm in trouble. That's me. It's scary. I should have done this on Halloween. That's me (laughs) standing outside the gates of hell. Or like in, in Greece, there's a bunch of caves that are traditionally thought to lead into the underworld. And this is one at Elefsina or Eleusis, um, where the, the mysteries of Demeter were based, the goddess of agriculture. But her myth is also very closely associated with the underworld and with Hades. And so there's a temple of Hades there, and that's the ruins of it. And the reason for that is that her daughter was kidnapped by Hades. So Hades, who is the brother of Zeus and the lord of the underworld, took a shine to Persephone, uh, this, uh, the beautiful daughter of Demeter. And he kidnaps her, he abducts her, and he makes her his queen, the queen of the underworld. But she doesn't like it there because it's kind of horrible in the underworld. It's mm. boring. They don't have Netflix. Like, it's damp, like, no one really wants to be there. And so Demeter is very sorrowful because she's lost her daughter. She can't figure out where she is. So she spends a long time wandering all over the earth to and fro and grieving for the loss of her beloved daughter. The thing that she most loves in the world has been snatched away from her. And so she experiences this terrible grief. And because of that, like nature grinds to a halt. There's a terrible drought that ensues. Um, the crops stop growing. Nature stops producing. Uh, all of mankind, like all of humanity's, like really in trouble because of this. And so they're complaining all the time to Zeus. And so, you know, Zeus thinks he needs to do something about this. So he strikes a deal with Hades and says, could you, could you let her go back? Because you know, this didn't really work out according to plan. Her mum is really upset. Like, and, you know, and, the, and all the nature's ground to halt, all the people are upset. And so Hades kind of reluctantly agrees to let Persephone, his queen, go back up to Earth and return to her mother. But he tricks her. Um, he says, you know, do you want some of this tasty pomegranate? And uh, she says, oh, that looks quite tasty. And she eats six pomegranate seeds. And the fates have decreed that anyone who eats anything in Hades is trapped there and they can't return. So she's fated to return to the underworld for six months every year for half of the year. So in cycles, Persephone, the thing that Demeter most loves is taken away from her, goes into the underground, becomes the queen of the underworld. And then for six months, she's allowed to go back above the earth and to be reunited with her mother. And so it's very symbolic. Like you can see there Demeter and the god Hermes is guiding her daughter Persephone back from the underworld. Um, Anyone that went back to the, uh, came back to life after being to the underworld in in the ancient world, it's almost shamanistic. They'd seen the other side. And so this is the source of the mysteries Like you would be initiated into these rituals. It was secret, you couldn't tell anyone about it but you'd get a glimpse of what existed in the afterlife because Persephone had passed on this knowledge to humanity about what lay in the underworld. She kind of bridged the the gap between the world of the living and the world of the dead. And so there's lots of symbolism embedded in this, but part of it is this idea that for Demeter, the thing that she most loved was 
uh, cyclically taken away from her and then given back to her. So it represents the transience of the things that we love, of our relationships, the impermanence of everything, like, and also the transience of our feelings of pleasure and grief, the highs and lows of life in these six month uh, cycles. So some of the symbolism, um, perhaps the most important symbolism of uh, the mysteries of Demeter, the, mis the Eleusinian mysteries as they're called. So a Christian author, Hippolytus writes, the Athenians, while initiating people into the Eleusinian rites, likewise display to those who are being admitted to the highest grade at these mysteries, the mighty and marvelous and most perfect secret suitable for one initiated into the highest mystic truths, an ear of corn in silence reaped. And I don't know, you probably can't see in the background, but there's a frieze there showing Demeter holding these ears of corn that were part of the, the symbolism. Marcus Aurelius refers to the symbolism of reaping ears of corn. So this may be an allusion to the uh, Eleusinian mysteries, or if not, it's probably a kind of universal symbolism that kind of overlaps. It comes from a, a lost play by Euripides. And the lines say, our lives must be reaped like a ripe ear of corn. And as one comes to be, another is no more. So again, it's this kind of symbolism of the harvest that happens periodically, like, and then the earth lies fallow again, and then the crops are abundant again. So there's good and bad, highs and lows, ups and downs, birth and death, kind of the cycles of nature, and encouraging us to view nature as changeable and transient and to accept that. But also uh, to accept that our own life is like the, like the flourishing of... Uh, plants um, and the growth of the harvest and that one day we're going to be reaped we are transient as well so just as we kind of feed on these plants that come and go our own life is impermanent and transient as well and then there's another uh, passage in Marcus Aurelius a, a reference to Euripides which I feel might be related to Eleusinian mysteries but who knows so we're told the Eleusinian priests used to pour a libation as part of the ritual. It's very mysterious. We don't know that much about it. It was uh, prohibited by law for anyone to, to say anything about what went on in these secret cults. But they would pour uh, wine uh, to the gods and say, and they would chant, rain and conceive, rain and conceive. And Marcus quotes Euripides, again from a lost play, saying, the earth loves rain, and divine heaven loves to fall in showers. The universe loves to create whatever is to be, so nature loves to create whatever is to be. Thus I will say to the universe, your love is my love too. And this is like what we call amor fati in Stoicism. It's accepting fate, the love of fate, the love of whatever it is that nature gives us, like the ups and downs, the highs and lows. Epictetus says... The Stoic teacher, Epictetus, says, don't ask things to happen as you wish, but wish them to happen as they do, and your life, Scott, will flow smoothly. Let's hope. I've actually got one of those Amalfati coins, Donald, from the Ryan Holiday. Yeah. It's got a skull on it. Um, it's got a flame. Oh, it's got a flame on it? Yeah. On the other side. But I got a memento mori as well. So, you know, remember, I'm going to die. That's called you shows up before. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah. 
Right. Well, that's good. We're right in with the symbolism then. When so don't wish for things to be as you desire, but desire for them to be as they are and your life will go smoothly. Epictetus says, and this going smoothly, flowing smoothly, he says, like a river or a stream is a figure of speech that he's using, which seems to be an allusion to a, a recurring metaphor in the philosophical literature. One of the most common metaphors actually, which is the idea of a river flowing. And that goes back to a pre-Socratic philosopher called Heraclitus. And he taught this doctrine that many people think sounds like the central doctrine of Buddhism. So Buddhism is called Anattavada. Um, that means the doctrine of no self and also Anichavada, which means the doctrine or the philosophy of impermanence, of transience. So many people think that one of the most distinctive things about Buddhism is this idea, the teaching that everything is transient, everything is impermanent. Um, but the earliest Buddhist scriptures only date from the first century AD. It was oral before that. So we don't know exactly what Buddhism looked like until it was written down. But in the sixth century BC, like way, way earlier, the Greeks were very familiar with this doctrine of pantare, as they call it, everything flows. And Heraclitus famously said, um, his example or illustration of this was you cannot step into the same river twice, he said, Scott, because new waters are constantly flowing through it. And he thought in the same way, everything in nature like was constantly changing. This is like Marcus Aurelius said, this is not the same body to which your mother gave birth. Like the molecules in it are constantly changing. Like things look like they're the same, but if you look closely, there's little changes happening, subtle changes constantly happening. Like we, we're geared to overlook the changes that are happening all the time before our eyes and things are more fragile and more changeable than we typically acknowledge. You cannot step into the same river twice because new waters are constantly flowing through it. Yeah. How many Heraclitians, Scott, how many followers of Heraclitus does it take to change a light bulb? Zero. One. One. Only one. No, no. An unlimited. Unlimited. Infinite number. I was yeah. to say, I, I reckon it's only one, but he can't change the same light bulb twice. <laughs> You've learned that, that joke, yeah. So, so <laughs> on on that topic, people have. I know this is a hot topic at the moment. When lockdown hit, first of all, people were worried about all the change, right? Mm -hmm. Now they're worried about going back into the world, back into the big change of social life, right? Mm -hmm. Why do people expect everything to stay the same? Like, obviously, things change. So, is do you think a lot of the things are anxiety and stuff is like? due to the lack of control, then I'm feeling like, oh my God, the world's opening up and not ready. Uncertainty and a lack of control tends to be associated with anxiety. And I think it's our human nature. We're thinking animals, we're reasoning animals and, and reason involves that abstraction. Like we attach labels to things and we make generalizations. Like, and so the, the very nature of thinking involves simplifying stuff, making generalizations about stuff. Like, that's what thinking is. It's a process of abstraction. Like, and, and that means glossing over differences. And that means glossing over changes. Like, so it encourages us to think about things in abstract, generalized ways. Like, that, you know, doesn't, like, doesn't want to really acknowledge differences and changes. 
right? It's an effort for us often. We have to, when we recognize change, when we recognize difference, usually means we have to revise our thinking, right? And that's something that it, it's uncomfortable for us to do, right? We prefer to, to stick with the generalizations that we've already made. Yeah, definitely. So, like, these philosophers want to push against that and to say, you know, this is all, you know, BS. Like, you know, like, we need to use reason, but reason simplifies nature. And in reality, nature is much more complex and diverse and subtle and varied than, like, we, you know, we would like to admit to ourselves. So Heraclitus had this idea also called holism, which is the idea that the reality is the totality of things and that we're always just looking at bits or fragments of the reality and taking uh, things out of context. And in order to really understand anything in life, we have to try and put it within the bigger context. We have to look at the bigger picture. So pantheism is the doctrine that the universe as a whole is sacred. Like, so the, the entire universe considered in its totality is, is Zeus, actually. Um, they would say, um, the Stoics say, that's their idea of God. And they're always trying to kind of imagine the bigger picture. Uh, so seeing the whole, though, the Stoics liked to try and meditate on the totality of the universe. So it's inconceivable, but they tried to, they like to try and make an effort to visualize it or conceive of it. And uh, when we do that, it encourages us to think of the transience of things. So like I, you know, any object, I've got my little glass of water in front of me just now, but if I try and imagine the whole of time and space, like in this little glass's position within it, then of course I have to acknowledge there was a time when this didn't exist. Like, and there's gonna be a time when it ceases to exist. So it forces me to recognize the impermanence of things and to see the fragility and smallness within the bigger picture. Like, so the sense of impermanence is amplified by expanding the scope of our perception. Like, and that's what pantheism encourages. But part of that, not just, you know, it's one thing saying that this glass is just like a, a, a fleeting split second in the story of the universe. But Scott, buddy, so are you. No, so, no, I'm, I'm living forever, Donald. <laughs> I'm not playing. We're all transient. We're impermanent. And so that you'll recognize there is Yorick, like, who is a memento mori, just like your coin. Yeah. Like, and actually, Hamlet was a philosophy student. He just returned from his studies to Denmark. And so this idea of him holding a skull would have been kind of a cliche to Elizabethan audiences. They would have yeah, that's the stuff. Philosophers have skulls and stuff. Like, they like to contemplate their own mortality. This is a kind of cliche for a, a scholar, a philosopher, a theologian to, to meditate on, on skulls and things. Um, Marcus Aurelius also quotes a passage from Homer that says, leaves, some the wind scatters on the ground, so is the race of men. So again, thinking, it's a metaphor, a natural metaphor, but leaves falling from the tree, a metaphor for nature, and he's using it again, comparing it like the reaping corn being compared to our own fleeting mortality. Here, he's comparing leaves falling from a tree uh, and using it as a way of reminding himself of his own transience, his own mortality. And again, Epictetus spells it out more literally. He says, I am not eternal. 
contrary to what Scott has said. But a human being, a mortal, a part of the whole, again, like this idea of holism, I'm just a bit of a bigger picture, like Heraclitus has said, as an hour is of the day. That's a really cool way of putting it, actually. Mm. Like an hour, I must come, and like an hour, pass away. That's almost quite a poetic like, turn of phrase for Epictetus to use there. He was a bit hardcore. But this is this this subject, right? Some people get freaked out about it. I notice sometimes I'm just thinking about like, oh my god, I'm not going to be here one day. Like when I was before I was born, like that's going to happen again. And then you mm. start getting freaked out for like a half a second. You're like, what? The f- <laughs> like what is going on? And then you think like, well, some people will go, what's the point? Like what am I doing here? And then you go like some people are like, you know, well, we're all going to die. We might as well get on with it. What is? How do you help people to understand like? And not get overloaded by it because it's quite intense, isn't it? Well, the Stoics think there's two types of value and we mix them up like, if we're not careful. And they think there's a the value that we attribute to external stuff, like other people's opinions of us and our status in society and our wealth and property. And then there's a the value that we derive from our own character and actions. And they think that when you meditate on the vastness of the universe and our smallness within it, then external things seem unimportant and trivial. Like when you're confronted with your own mortality, then external things seem relatively unimportant and trivial. But they think that what retains its value, even from that perspective, are our own uh, virtues, our own character traits, like integrity, wisdom, and justice. So the Stoics think, look, even if our life is only a tiny blip in the history of the universe, Nevertheless, it makes sense to try and do the best that we can with it and to live with integrity, with wisdom, with justice, with self-discipline and courage. But acquiring lots of wealth or trying to become famous kind of starts to seem less important. Like Marcus throughout the meditations goes on and on about this idea. Even as Roman emperor, he thinks like one day people won't even be able to remember my name, ironically, because we do remember his name today. But he thought in the grand scheme of things, like when I imagine the whole history of the universe, I'm nothing like, you know, I'm fighting these huge wars and, you know, I'm commanding the the largest army ever massed on a Roman frontier, but it's a tiny, he says like the turn of a screw in terms of the history of the universe, it's nothing. So what am I to do? He says, well, what I'm to do is to act with integrity, like because of the value that I derive from knowing that I'm doing the right thing, the satisfaction that I get from believing that I'm acting consistently in accord with my own values. So he thinks that character values become more important potentially, whereas the value of external things is seen to be less important. And actually that, what you said there about people thinking, what's the point? Like that leads on to what we're about to discuss in a moment, which is non-attachment. So the Stoics think that picturing um, the, the whole like in pantheism, like uh, in in the view from above and meditating on our own mortality helps us to let go of our attachments to external things. In other words, they think it could be therapeutic. Like Mm. this kind of, like a kind of compartmentalized nihilism, if you like, you know, a kind of learning to, to see through the smoke and mirrors of society, like and question the value of external things like it can help release us from slavery to them, the Stoics think, uh, at least to our emotional and psychological 
liberation. But we have to fill that void with some other value. And they think that comes from acting in accord with our own fundamental values in life. And, and some people are left at sea for like they need to search for a substitute value. And that's what Socrates and the Stoics thought philosophy could do. It's the love of wisdom, like learning to value wisdom and uh, the other uh, you know, values that potentially we can derive from that. So if we exercise wisdom, for instance, in our relationship with other people, the Stoics would say we're, we're acting with social virtue, with justice, fairness, and compassion towards others. So we must learn to pursue wisdom and then to apply wisdom to other people and to life in general. And they thought that becomes the, the new meaning of life for us rather than just kind of ex acquiring external goods and reputation and stuff like that. They thought that's all a big con, it's a swizz, like, and looking at the bigger picture or coming to terms with their own mortality helps to see through the kind of illusion of society. Um, they called it tufos, uh, smoke or a mist, like smoke and mirrors, we would say today. Mm -hmm. So we are transient. And Socrates says that philosophy itself is a preparation for death. Seneca said that every evening when he went to bed, he would tell himself, I might not wake up tomorrow morning, which is pretty <laughs> hardcore. Like, you go to bed, put his head in the pillow, and think, tomorrow I might not, I might wake up dead. Like, you know, this might be it, buddy. He would say as he was going to sleep, how would you feel about that? And that's like, uh, it might, I know that freaks people out at first, but once you get used to asking questions like that, you know, it becomes less scary and it becomes quite empowering. And you start to think, did I really do a good job today? Did I make the best of the time that I had? Am I grateful for the opportunity that life has given me? And it, it encourages you to become more grounded in the here and now and to think, if this is it, like Marcus goes further. He says, imagine you're already dead, but you've been kind of, you're in penalty time. You've been given like another day, like extended on loan from nature. That's like, quite a cool way of thinking about it, actually. You should make the most of like it. Like it's a win. That's like almost every day's a win. It's a then. bonus. Yeah. Like, so well, you know. it's like, um, you know, when you're in a dream and you die in a dream and then you wake up and you're like, oh, like in a dream, you do something bad and you go to jail for life. But then you wake up and you're like, oh my God, thank God. You've got another <laughs> chance yeah. to set things right. And do you know what that sounds like, Scott? Do you know who had a dream? where like he was dead was Ebenezer Scrooge. That's who you are right now. I am, like, yeah. Handling Ebenezer Scrooge. So that's, you can see in the graphic there, it's the tombstone, because the ghost of Christmas yet to come takes Scrooge and shows him his own funeral. And it's a wake up call. Like, mm. he says, Scrooge, you better rethink things. Like, because <laughs> nobody's going to come to your funeral. Is this really what you want your life to stand for? Like, and that can be, we use that, that technique sometimes in resilience building and psychotherapy. It's a radical, challenging technique, but it can also be incredibly powerful. It's strong medicine, Scott. You know, it's maybe not for everybody. It might be too much for someone that's suffering from depression, but it's also existential. It's profound and it's liberating to imagine, suppose this is it. And I'm saying this because during the pandemic, I think a lot of people, especially at the beginning of it, did begin to question their own mortality. Like, mm. and to come to terms, like, with the, the prospect that, you know, maybe everything was changing and, and maybe they might, their life might be at risk. And I think a lot of people thought, maybe I should change my values. Maybe I should do something different with my life, you know. And it's good if it, that kind of wake-up call can shake people up and encourage them to reappraise their values. Because the values that we inherit from society are all BS. 
Like we're surrounded by narcissism, consumerism, materialism, hedonism, all the isms, right? And everybody <laughs> knows it's BS, right? But it's been the same way throughout the centuries. Like Socrates, Marcus really said the same thing. Like we're brought up surrounded by people in a society that are indoctrinating us into these superficial values. And if we're lucky, we get some sort of shock, a wake up call, or we're introduced to a philosophy that makes us think more deeply about it and question whether there's maybe something else deeper that could give our life value. So I was going to read you a wee poem. It's normally Lalia that, that does the, the poetry, and I know she's going to do some later. But I can't talk about impermanence and amor fati and memento mori without quoting Ozymandias, um, <laughs> who's a character, there's a character in the movie Watchmen named after Ozymandias. Hmm. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away on the beach in Wales. <laughs> like, so there's, the idea is this, this guy, this king, whoever he was, had built this colossus in his honour, saying, gaze upon my works, you mighty in despair. And now it's dust, like it's shattered and no one even remembers who the guy was. So he was a big deal back in the day, but nobody cares about him now. Like, it's all over. And this theme in philosophy and literature is sometimes called ubai sunt, which means where are they? Or like, where are they now, as we would say? And it's a theme in Latin poetry and actually in, in, in poetry in general and in the arts in general. But Marcus Aurelius refers to it a lot. And for example, many passages, for example, he talks about Augustus, the founder of the Roman Empire, so Marcus is uh, kind of in this lineage descending from Augustus. Augustus is the first emperor and Marcus thinks about him a lot. So this would have been, um, Augustus would have died like uh, over a century and a half before Marcus Aurelius. Um, so it's kind of, you know, ancient history to him. He says Augustus's advisors, his wife, his daughter, his descendants, the whole of his court, they're all toast. Contemplate the inscription on tombs, the last of his race. Apparently that was engraved on some tombs. The last of his race has died here, like Ozymandias. Consider how much trouble their ancestors took over leaving a successor. Marcus was worrying about leaving a successor. Yet of necessity, somebody, Scott, has to be the last in the family line. Someone one day is gonna be the last descendant of Scott Fleer. <laughs> finally consider the extent so it's tragic finally consider the extinction of an entire race like there's a story everyone knows a story of Scipio Africanus um, who conquered Carthage like finally defeated Rome's great power the, this like the great opponent the other rival superpower in the Mediterranean in North Africa 
and uh, Scipio Africanus defeated Carthage. He had the whole um, city torn apart, stone by stone. According to legend, the Romans salted the earth so that crops couldn't grow there. They said, these guys aren't coming back from this. We're wiping off the face of the earth. And the, the Romans were jubilant. And uh, Scipio was crying. And his officer said, why are you crying? And he said, "'Tis glorious, but I can see that one day the same thing will happen to Rome." And so he was looking at the bigger picture, like, and he was saying, "We finally defeated our great opponent." But it just makes me think, like Memento Mori, it reminds me of the fact that, you know, even Rome itself one day, like, will collapse, like, and be destroyed in the same way. Like, so he was kind of, and he studied Stoicism actually, so he's trained to kind of look at things in terms of the bigger picture. So Marcus Aurelius says this, imagine the extinction of your entire race. Imagine like one day there's someone who's gonna be the last in your line. You know, think of all the other Roman emperors. He often thinks of the Roman emperors that have come before him and, uh, and how they're, they're, he says, this odd thing, he says their names sound uh, archaic to me now. He says the sound of their names sounds like something from the history books. And one day that's what your name is going to sound like. Imagine thinking one day my name is going to sound like something from history books. One day people will know me, Marcus told himself, by looking at statues. Mm. And, you know, like I'm going to be like Ozymandias, just a, like a, a bunch of ruined sculpture. He says, with everything which happens, keep before your mind's eye men to whom the same things happened and how they became annoyed, and how they treated such events as, as though they were strange. They, they went, I can't believe this is happening. They got all worked up and all flustered, and they complained about it, Scott. And then Marcus says, and yet where are they now, Ubay Sunt? Like, where are they now? Like, they're all gone, they're all toast. Augustus, Hadrian, all those guys, like they fought huge battles, they got all worked up about things. It's all ancient history now, and one day you're oh. gonna go way, buddy. Like, it's what he said to himself. So confronting his own mortality, he was constantly forcing himself to do this existential check and reappraise his values and think what really matters here, like is your attitude towards life, like that you're acting morally, you're acting with wisdom and integrity, like mm -hmm. not the, the, the reputation and the fame and the glory, like that doesn't really last forever. It's like they say about Alexander the Great, that he um, asked uh, as he was dying, he said, you know, when I die, I want you to make two holes in the casket and let my, my hands be dangling out either side. And so when a king or an emperor died, they would carry their coffin, uh, like having them lie in state, they would carry them around um, so the people, uh, crowds could gather in the cities and the towns and, and see their body. And Alexander said, I want my hands to dangle out of the side of the casket so that people can see I'm leaving empty-handed. Can't take it with you, Scott. Like, you know, all the stuff he achieved, like, what does it really matter once he's gone? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... maybe he would have been better dedicating his life to the pursuit of wisdom, enlightenment, like, rather than conquest and glory. So mm. it leads us on to this idea of non-attachment in Buddhism. It's very similar to the idea of non-attachment. And Stoic philosophy, we have it in the West. Everything that you, you know, we find in Buddhist philosophy, much of it, we find similar ideas in, in Greek philosophy and classical Greek philosophy, and particularly in Hellenistic philosophy that followed on after it, um, following the, the time of Alexander the Great. 
So Marcus Aurelius has a really neat saying about this. Maybe I mentioned it before. He talks about imagining absent things as if they were already present. And he says, that's what people do all the time. So they think to themselves, I wish I had a Ferrari. Ferrari's absent. I'm imagining what it would be like if I had it. And he says that causes craving and attachment mm. and suffering. Imagining things you don't have like is a way of fueling craving like, and it creates a sense of deprivation. And we do that naturally. But Marcus says, what happens if you make an effort to do the complete opposite and you imagine the present things as if they were already absent? So what if we didn't have electricity, Scott? What if we didn't have Zoom? We wouldn't be able to have this amazing conversation right now. What if I didn't have Lalia? Like, I'd be bereft. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't have anybody to, to talk to about classics all day long. Like, <laughs> you know, so that encourages when we imagine present things like Lalia, as if they were absent, like that encourages us to experience gratitude and also mm -hmm. to reconcile ourselves to the, the changeable nature um, of things and people. So to imagine present things as if they were absent means accepting their impermanence as well. To think of something as transient, what does it really mean to think of something as transient or impermanent? It means thinking of it as potentially absent. Mm. It means thinking of it as present and also imagining its absence at the same time. And this is this kind of trick, like either by looking at the bigger picture, we think there's a time when this exists but there also was a time when it, before it existed and there'll be a time after it existed. So when I look at the picture, the bigger picture, I'm imagining its presence and also simultaneously thinking about its absence. Or when I simply tell myself it's fragile and impermanent, I'm also premeditating, I'm thinking in advance about its potential for being gone. And it's this incorporating the sense of potential absence that seems to lead to, to free up our attachment towards things. Epictetus takes a, a cheap cup um, made of clay, like the, which would have been like a disposable thing to the ancient Greeks. Uh, it would have been a cliche, an example of something that was very uh, fragile, fragile piece of ceramic. And uh, he says, think of everything as being as fragile mm. uh, and disposable and impermanent uh, as this cup, like so that you, you, know, you don't become attached uh, to anything. Think of everything, he says, as if it was merely on loan from nature in order to encourage, encourage yourself to experience gratitude for it and to be prepared for the fact that it could potentially be taken away from you. So the, the Stoics, um, like Marcus Aurelius, uh, gosh, when he died, we're told that his eulogies, there's this weird little hint in the histories. We, we don't get told much about his philosophy in the Roman histories, but sometimes there's weird little hints. So we're told that when he died, uh, during the, the eulogies for him, which I'm, I'm guessing might have included references to his philosophy because he was known for that, you'd think. Um, they knew that he had beliefs about mortality and so on. So, and some of the people giving those eulogies would also have been Stoics. So they said during the eulogies that they shouldn't mourn for him. Um, they should think of him not as being lost, but as being returned to nature, like and having thought of him as having been temporarily on loan for, from nature. And this is a, a stoic maxim that we should think of people and things as merely being temporarily loaned to us by nature. And when they're gone, we shouldn't think, oh, you know, I've lost my favorite cup. 
who we should think have merely returned what was on loan to me from nature. And they feel that that's a way of helping us to cope better with it. That's, um, that's similar to like, did Christianity like, take that and say, well, just think of heaven instead? Ah, uh, the idea of the, the afterlife is actually, you know, was supposedly a big part of the Eleusinian mysteries. So maybe in some ways that influenced early Christianity. But the Stoics themselves didn't actually believe in the afterlife. They had an even crazier theory, Scott. I'm going to tell you about because I know that you like these sort of things. Yeah. Here's a little nugget of philosophy. I'll tell you in one minute and it will blow your mind, Scott. It will give you nightmares. <laughs> and get them ready. One day you'll tell it to your kids, right? So Friedrich Nietzsche was a classical philologist. He studied ancient languages and he ripped off a lot of ideas from the classics, particularly the Stoics and the Pythagoreans. He doesn't always mention it. And one of his ideas is called the eternal recurrence. That idea comes from the Stoics and probably from earlier philosophers. And their idea was that the whole of the universe was causally determined like clockwork, like everything happened. It was predetermined to happen the way that it did because of the things that preceded it. It was like a big causal chain reaction that unfolded. And they said, but well, one day the universe will end and everything will be gone and it'll all return to zero, absolute nothing. But they said, but nothing is the same as nothing. Like two absolute nothings would be identical with one another. And yet the universe sprang from nothing. So they said, well, hang on a minute. If the universe sprang from nothing and one day it's going to return to absolute nothing, then shouldn't the whole thing happen again? in exactly the same form, like clockwork. And so they believe the whole of time happens in cycles that are absolutely identical. Mm -hmm. And so this conversation that I'm having here with you, me, and Lalia, we've already had a zillion mm. times before in the past, mm. and we'll repeatedly have the same conversation a zillion times again in the future. Mm. Now, that's weird, because it allows the Stoics to say that this conversation is fleeting, transient and in a moment it's going to be gone forever but in a sense it's also eternal because mm. it's going to recur over and over again mm. so it's both transient and eternal because it's fleeting but it's going to keep recurring so they get to have their cake and eat it in a weird way i like it that reminds right. me of, that reminds me of someone i read in the forums like 10 years ago i think uh -huh. someone's theory was uh we're all basically the same person. We're all the same consciousness, all li living different lives to experience different experiences, but we're basically all the same, just having different lives, collecting like experience and stuff. I was like, what the fuck? Basically, like the, all, yeah. The Stoics have this idea. They think we're, they think our, they, they actually say that. Marcus Aurelius even says that. They have this crazy idea that the universe as a whole is like the body of a one vast being, like the body hmm. of Zeus. Although they're weird, Her Her Heraclitus says something really cool about it. He says that nature is both willing and unwilling to be known by the name of Zeus. So he loves his paradoxes. If you said to Heraclitus, the universe as a whole, is that Zeus? He would say, yes and no. Like, I love that guy. Like, he won't give a definitive <laughs> kind of, like, yes and no. It's both willing and unwilling. Yeah, man, tell us the answer now, tell him. But he thinks the universe has this consciousness that's fragmented and we all get a little bit of this vast consciousness, but there's also, we're parts of a, a bigger whole, we're like cells within a, the, org, the body of a single organism. And he thinks when, if we can view things that way, like uh, view ourselves as being part of something much bigger, it's very, he thinks it's very liberating. Um, it must be true, isn't it? It must be. 
Because if you look at atomic, uh, quantum physics, all these little things acting differently, then you've got us, we're tiny, then you've got planets and suns and galaxies and billions of them. Yeah. Like, we, where we're, like it must be true. There's a sense of <laughs> just stating the obvious to say that we're part of a bigger system. But we don't normally think of it that way. We tend to think of ourselves as being fragmented, like this is me and that's you, and we're kind of like completely separate things. And mm. it requires a kind of effort to join it all together and, and think of ourselves as being mm. part of something together, like players on a single team. Or Marcus Aurelius says, when you're dealing with someone who's your enemy, you should think of it as if like you're two, a pair of hands that are designed to work together or two, two rows of teeth that are designed to grind together. Think of yourself as being part of the same system, players on the same team, like sparring partners in a single bout, like in a sense, they form a unity. Mm. Like it's just a matter of perception, really, a matter of perspective. Do you want to know, so um, do you want to know an, a, crazy fa- a crazy fact? Yeah. Okay, got a read for you. So the universe is only, po- the life is only possible on the universe for specific conditions, right? Mm-hmm. So life is only possible in this universe for this amount of time. One thousandth of a billion, billion, billionth, billion, billion, billionth, billion, billion, billionth of a percent. And if you were to think of that visually, life is only possible for one centimeter. That's life. All of life ever, forever, one centimeter. The distance is so long, the universe isn't big enough. So the universe is 99.9999% no life so we're alive at the tiniest 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 percentages possible to have life think of how nuts that is donald and you were born in scotland and donald robertson it's nuts we should, it's be, lucky. Lucky. We should be great lucky yeah we should and the other thing you could think is like you know um when you were when you were uh, conceived there were billions of sperm and out <laughs> of them all like there was one that made it to impregnate the egg, uh, you know, and that happened to, you know, it could have been any of the other ones. Like, so all of these ideas make us potentially more grateful for the opportunity, I think, that we have in life. Yeah, well, it has to. If it doesn't, like, you're nuts, you know, if you think that's not crazy, 400 trillion to one it is, the chance of you being alive, apparently. Scientists out. I think in a way what the, the Stoics and the other, these other Greek philosophers, in part, they're saying something very, very simple, which is that we tend, we, we fall into the habit of taking life for granted. Mm. And I think from yes. 101 different perspectives, like the, the truth is that we should be incredibly grateful for the opportunity. Like, and there are many different ways of reminding ourselves of that. I think, you know, like much of their, their philosophy kind of converges on this kind of wake up call that says, you know, do you realize like how incredibly lucky you are and how fleeting existence is and, you know, that you have this obligation to snap out of the trance that you're in and really make the most like of each uh, and every day. So I wanted to, to say a little bit, this is um, a quote from Seneca that I'm going to read because it's about stress and about worry. And what he says here, I, when I read this as a young guy, it blew me away. I kind of, I remember putting the book down and thinking, when was this written? Because this looks to me like it could have been written yesterday, like in a book on the psychology of stress management or something like that. I thought, was this really written in the first century AD? Like, it looks just like the contemporary stuff that psychologists talk about today and read today. 
So I'll tell you, without further ado, I'll tell you exactly what he says. He says, fear keeps pace with hope, nor does their so moving together surprise me. Both belong to a mind in suspense, to a mind in a state of anxiety through looking into the future. Both are mainly due to projecting our thoughts far ahead of us instead of adapting ourselves to the present, to the here and now. Thus it is that foresight, the greatest blessing humanity has been given, is transformed into a curse. Wild animals run from the dangers they actually see. And once they've escaped them, worry no more. We, however, are tormented alike by what is past and what is yet to come. A number of our blessings do us harm, for memory brings back the agony of fear, while foresight brings it on prematurely. No one confines his unhappiness to the present, says Seneca. That's and brilliant. That last bit. So we're talking about impermanence, we're talking about non-attachment, but we're also talking about being grounded in the present moment, in the here and now. So being able to look at the bigger picture, it being centered in the present moment. And, and Seneca quite rightly said that anxiety tends to be future focused. There's a reams of modern research on the cognitive psychology of anxiety that show that, yeah, it's typically concerned with uncertainty about the future. And so, you know, it's a simplistic, uh, this is a simplistic way of treating anxiety, but you can, and I'll come back to this later with some tech, practical techniques later. Uh, towards the end today to show you how to actually do this. But you, you can very directly uh, treat worry and anxiety just by training your attention to become more grounded in the present moment um, because anxiety by its very nature tends to be projected. As Seneca said, absolutely spot on into the future. And so Marcus Aurelius says, if you shall strive to live only what is really your life, that is the present, the here and now, then you will be able to pass that portion of life which remains for you up to the time of your death, free from worry. And this is a guy who's living through a plague where 5 million people died. He's facing the risk of assassination every day. He faced a civil war. Like he's facing, he's stationed himself on the frontier, facing uh, hundreds of thousands of barbarian tribal warriors. Like he could have died. I think Marcus Aurelius woke up every morning and pinched himself and thought, am I actually still, I've made it through another night. Like, but he says, as long as you can focus on the here and now, and people instinctively do that in really stressful situations. They go, just put one foot after another. Like if you can just get through this, like, you know, like you can, he talks in the meditations about don't let yourself kind of like become too preoccupied with all of the details. Like just focus on doing like what's right in front of you right now with integrity. So there's this kind of weird, again, paradox that he sometimes contemplates the bigger picture, but then he always wants to center himself back in the present moment. And in terms of his action, like he wants to focus on taking action with integrity and wisdom here and now centered in the present, but with a sense of it being part of a much bigger whole. Mm. And that leads me on to this idea of uh, the, what the Stoics call prosochi, which is a technical term in Stoic philosophy and also in early Christianity. And it, it's used basically to mean something very similar to what the Buddhists mean by mindfulness. So prosochi means attention. And it, specifically in the Stoics and in the early Christian authors, it means paying attention 
to your conscious mind, to your value judgments, to your hegemonicon, they say, to the, the part, the ruling faculty, what we call the, the central executive function of consciousness. So the part of your mind that's responsible for decision-making and arriving at judgments about things, you're, uh, as far as the Stoics are concerned, it's a part of your mind that assigns value to things. And they say you should con constantly be monitoring that and paying attention to it. But in Greece today, the same word is used just to mean uh, beware or be mindful. It's on danger signs, like this sign says, beware of the dog, prosochi skilos, like mind the dog, like mind the gap, like the signs on the underground say. It's the same word that's used on trains and stuff for mind the gap, but it means be mindful to the Stoics, not of the gap, not of the ski loss of the dog, like, but of your own thinking, like be mindful of your own judgment. Epictetus says to his students, if you were walking about with no shoes on, you'd be really careful where you tread. Like in the same way though, you should be mindful of where you put your judgments. Like in the same way that if you were walking about barefoot, you'd be careful not to hurt your feet. You should be careful not to hurt your character by constantly paying close attention to the way that you use your value judgments. And that's an interesting metaphor because philosophers were known for walking barefoot. There's a, a, a lovely uh, TV play with Pisa Ustinov about Socrates called Barefoot in Athens. Um, Socrates was best friends with a shoemaker called Simon. Uh, but he, uh, Simon? Yeah, he was hanging out in this guy Simon. <laughs> And uh, discuss philosophy. And Simon would be like, Socrates, when are you actually going to buy a pair of sandals from me? Like, you know, you're like the worst customer ever. You don't even wear a shoe. You hang around in a shoe shop all day. Weirdly. <laughs> Everything about Socrates was paradoxical, even his shoes. So, Epictetus says you should pay attention to your own mind, your ruling faculty, your fears, your desires. Uh, how your thoughts, actions, and feelings interact with one another, just like kind of in Buddhist mindfulness. Um, but this occurs in the here and now. To be mindful of your own mental activity means becoming centered in the present moment. Your actions occur in the present moment. Your locus of control is in the present moment. So mindfulness has to be centered in the present moment. And that leads me on like, oh, I want to say just yeah. before, I, like, I'll, I'll finish actually with a little quote from, uh, I became interested in philosophy because when I was a wee boy growing up in Scotland, in Ayr, which is the, the home of Rabbi Burns, our national bard, like we all had to learn Burns poetry. And his most famous poem is this epic that's influenced by Greek classics. It's influenced by the Bacchae. And it's called Tamashantra. It's about witches. And it Burns incorporate some of these philosophical themes from Greek and, and Latin poetry. And so at one point in uh, Tamashantar, he says, pleasures are like poppies spread. You seize the flower, it's bloomish shed. Or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white, then melts forever. So even Rabbi Burns is doing this classic uh, poetic uh, trope of reflecting on the impermanence of pleasure and all material things which i think leads nicely yeah through nature of course which we're going to come on to yeah analogies with nature okay so um want to eat the next eat the <laughs> no I, they never had anything as exciting as this at eaton you no. are you're, you're very lucky 
so yeah, so my presentation is kind of loosely termed carpe diem, which means, well, we kind of know it sees the day in English. Um, and I'm gonna start with um, a little film clip, which uh, some of you may have seen this film. It's really great. Um, it's got Robin, the late great Robin Williams playing an English teacher um, at a college. And he's really inspirational, the boys love him, but tragedy ensues in the course of the film and it's um, really superb. Anyway, here is him introducing the boys to poetry and also to uh, some of these concepts that we've been thinking about. Now, Mr. Pitts, it's an unfortunate name, Mr. Pitts. <laughs> Okay, I'm just gonna pause that there. Um, so yeah, he then shows the boys the pictures of, of, of departed students and um, invites them to remember um, that we're not gonna be here forever. And he gets them to read an English poem and then he reminds them of this famous Latin phrase, seize the day. Um, what we are going to look at now is, um, that happened last time as well. I don't know how to move it on. Yeah, you've got to click twice, I think. Oh, right. click it twice. Thank you. Um, we're going to have a look at the poem that the line actually comes from. Um, so this is by the Roman poet Horace, who lived in the first century BC. So about 50 years before Christ. And I'll just read it out in English and then um, we've got the Latin as well. Um, Don't ask me. It should be a crime to know what lifespan the gods allow to you and me. Don't bother with horoscopes. Far better to bear the future, my darling, like the past. Whether Jupiter has many winters yet to give, all this our last. For now, another winter wears out the sea on the brittle rocks. Strain your wine, be wise, and prune back your hopes within a narrow plot. While we were talking, envious time has fled. Seize the day, trust in tomorrow as little as possible. 
Um, this is so that's that's Horace on the right, um, and this is the poem in Latin: Tu ne quaesieris scire nefas quem mihi quem tibi finem di dederent luconui nec Babylonios temptaris numeros ut melius quid quiderit parti siu pluris yemes siu tribuit Jupiter ultimam quae nunc oppositis debilitat pumicibus mare terrenum sapias vina liques et spatio brevi spem longam reseces dum luquamor fugurit in vida itas carpe diem quam minimum credula postero and that is the poem in Latin. So I just thought we would have a look through the lines in English and just have a little think about how this reflects some Stoic ideas and some universal ideas of impermanence um, and living in the here and now. So he says, don't ask me, it should be a crime. He uses this really strong word. He actually says it should be a crime for us to find out how long we have um, to live. Um, and he also uses a strange phrase, Babylonio, Babylonios numeros, which literally means like Babylonian tables, but it's basically the Roman equivalent of horoscopes. So they had horoscopes back in the day. <laughs> uh, you could like go and ask the horoscope, how long am I going to live? Da, da, da. Get some sort of, you know, like uh, oracular, you know, um, presentment on this. Um, but Horace is saying to us, he's like saying it's a really bad idea. Like, don't go and find out how, how much longer we have to live. Um, and I, I really think that this is linked to the stoic value of moderation um, in terms of knowing your limits. So like, you, you don't want to, um, the idea of like knowing how long you're gonna live is like something which is kind of, if anybody should know it, it's in the preserve of like the gods, the immortals, fate, something bigger than you. If you're trying to know that, to me, it's like, you're going beyond your realm as a human. So it's about just like being happy within your own skin, saying, I don't need to find that out, you know? Um, so that's what I, you know, I, I kind of think that that's, that's a really nice sentiment in the poem. Um, <clears throat> and then he says that it's better to bear the future in the same way as we bear the past. And he uses this word patty, which means to literally can mean to suffer as well. He says, we should suffer the future in the same way that we suffer or that we bear the past, which basically means treat what might happen in the future with the same degree of calm as what's already happened. Um, because we all know that we're way more resigned about the past. We worry about it much less than we worry about the future. Donald's already talked about this in his presentation, um, talking about Seneca and worry, that worries or anxiety are very much connected with future possibilities. And Horace is inviting us in poetic language. He's saying, and this is a love poem. He's, he's talking to his, to his um, um, girlfriend. He's saying, um, you know, let's not worry about what's to come. What, if you think about the future, that does lead to worry. Imagine the future is the same as the past. Um, and I also think that this, it takes great courage. This is the other thing to remember, you know, when people are saying, how do I do this? It's so difficult to treat the future as I treat the past with the same degree of resignation. Well, what I would say to you is, yeah, it takes courage 
to do that. Courage is a stoic virtue and you, you have to steel yourself to that. You have to say, yeah, you know what? I'm gonna get myself in a mindset now and I'm gonna treat the future. I'm gonna treat tomorrow. I'm gonna treat next year, that business meeting, going out, you know, the first day I step outside of my door after quarantine. Um, I'm gonna just, I'm, I'm gonna treat that worry as is in the same way that I would treat things that have happened in the past. And you should keep reminding yourself that it does take courage to do it. It doesn't just happen like that. So you've got to like steel yourself to it. But you know, of course, one way that we can build up courage is by a shared sense of everybody being in that same boat. So not only talking to your friends and being part of a community like this, but also looking to the past, reading Seneca, reading the poets and thinking, yeah, this is a universal theme. People have always felt this way. And I think you feel less alone, you know, and maybe that can give you courage. Mm. Um, That's true. So the other thing he says is, um, he says like, oh, don't worry, you know, let's not worry about how many winters or how many years we have yet to come. Um, you know, maybe we have many winters ahead of us. Maybe this is going to be our last one. But for now, um, all we have in front of us is winter wearing out the sea on the rocks. It's a really nice image. Um, and I think that this is kind of nature's really important in these poems. So he's saying like, you know what? We may have many winters, we may have one winter, but actually nature is gonna go on regardless. So we're part of this bigger thing, you know, the sea is still gonna continue pummeling into the, um, into the, you know, well, he's in Italy. So he's imagining it pummeling into the Italian coast <laughs> um, and that it's just going to keep going on and on and on till the end of time for as many years as we have. Actually, this metaphor yeah. about is is in Virgil. And mm -hmm. It's also in Marcus Aurelius as well. He said, um, but he uses the 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 rocks. He says the rocky headland. He says, be like the rocky headland, mm -hmm. like with the waves crashing around you. Mm -hmm. Like. So learning to be kind of resilient. And yeah, so that's a really nice point as well, that like the rocks are kind of resilient, exactly, as well. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting because in, in this metaphor, the rocks are actually wearing down the sea. So the uh -huh. rocks are the thing that is strong and it's like the sea is getting kind of worn out by that. It's like the sea's almost getting tired, you know, it's like our breath mm -hmm. in a way. Um, uh, and then he says to um, his girlfriend, he says, um, strain your wine. He says, um, be wise, sapias. He uses this, this phrase, this, this verb. It's an order. He says, be wise, strain your wine. And then he uses this lovely metaphor from nature. He says, prune back your hopes within a narrow plot. So he says, almost imagine that you're gardening. Yeah, you're in your garden and your hope is like a plant that's spreading. And instead of allowing your hope to grow out of the, out of your, you know, lots of people right now in, in, in lockdown, they've got their allotments, right? Loads of people I know have got like getting happiness in their allotments, but he's saying you're in your allotment and it's locked down. But instead of allowing your hopes to grow in this big gnarly thing out of the plot and growing too big and getting unruly, he mm -hmm. says like, prune them. He literally uses a word from gardening and he says, prune down your hopes yeah. so that they fit within your plot, meaning fit within what's right for you. You are your plot. You are your allotment, you know? Um, and the Romans were obsessed with gardening. So it's just like a really nice... It's a um, metaphor for moderation. <laughs> saying, like, so Scott, don't let your leeks grow mm. too big, buddy. 
This is yeah. very relevant, mine, because Boris has promised people June the 21st, and people are putting their hopes up that they're mm-hmm. going to be free from 21st onwards. And what might happen is that's not going to be true, and then that's going to crush people. because Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so the, the, the lesson to take from this would be prune back your hopes. Okay, it's, it's nice. We all need a little bit of hope, a little bit, right? So think to yourself, wouldn't that be nice? But don't, what he's saying is, what, what Horace would say is, don't go book a holiday, yeah? Don't go arrange to have a massive gathering with some people on the 22nd of June. Don't plan <laughs> that you're going to go on a road trip. Don't, don't plan things which are going to be difficult to accomplish should that not come to pass. It's Horace versus Boris. Horace versus Boris, exactly. You heard it here first. Yeah. Um, and the other thing he says here is he says sapias. He says be wise. So um, in the context of pruning back your hopes and not hoping for too much, he says that, that what you should do is be, that is a sign of wisdom. That is wisdom. Wisdom, of course, another one of the cardinal stoic virtues. So again, these are very much tied in with what Donald's been talking about, but in the form of poetry, stuff that people would have read, they would have listened to, they would have learned it, they would have gone to dinner parties, people would have been quoting this. It would have been very much part of the cultural currency in the same way that we have um, pop songs and lines from films that everybody knows it, you know? It's like part of our, part of our language. Um, There's a good question coming here. So, hmm. would you put uh, ambition and goals in the same thing as 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 this? Well, this is interesting because the the Romans actually had a word, ambitu, for ambition, right? And that the Romans' word for ambition was negative. It was about <laughs> kind of actually. Um, it came from the word which means going around and um, Mm. like bribing people. It meant actually a little walk that you did. If you were kind of campaigning for office, you would go on an ambitu, which was where you'd like kind of go and give some money to your followers. You'd promise them some stuff. Mm. Um, So for the Romans ambition is kind of, it's a a difficult problematic term because it's a little bit negative. The idea that you want to like reach the top, you know? Um, I think that Obviously, if we're just talking about goals, I think um, maybe we leave aside ambition for a sec because it's maybe it's a little bit more problematic. But um, if we, you know, if we think hopes and goals, um, I, I think still think that that Horace would say um, have realistic goals. You know, this is and this is true for anybody. You know, like I'm never going to be like a catwalk model, right? It would just <laughs> make me really depressed if that was my goal and my ambition, right? I'd make myself really miserable. I'd like have to not eat. I'd be like cranky all the time. And I'd be comparing myself to other women all the time. And it would just be really horrible. Um, But you know, if I have a goal of like, oh, I'd really like to maybe publish a book in the next 10 years about classics, then maybe that's a bit more of a reasonable goal. So I think the idea is like, keep your goals reasonable and again this is what we were talking about last week and in terms of knowing yourself knowing your limits like who am i as a person am i a person who could be a top model or am i more a kind of person who might just write a book about classics so keeping your goals and your ambitions within the scope of who you are who you and so you need some self-knowledge for this you need know thyself absolutely yeah i like it 
This is how uh, wrong Wales is. In Wales, if you go to Swansea train station, <laughs> as you walk out in massive text on the floor, it says ambition is critical. <laughs> uh, just, we've got it completely wrong down there. Yeah. Oh, God. Well, there's a good, actually, there's a good quote about it in Marcus Aurelius. He says, um, uh, ambition is tying your happiness to the opinions of other people. So by that, he's, see, he's meaning external success, right? And he said, uh, greed is attaching your happiness to the external events that befall you, like material objects and stuff. But sanity is deriving your happiness from your own character mm. and actions mm. was mm. within your sphere of control. Yeah. And so I guess to be more cautious, but you could say in the in today we might say, well, maybe there's two different types of goals and maybe there's two different types of ambitions. And the Stoics would say, well, if your ambition is based on uh, external outcomes or other people's opinions that aren't entirely under your control, then that could be problematic. You're, mm -hmm. you're a slave to fortune, in a sense. Mm -hmm. But if by ambition you somehow meant, you know, being the type of person that you want to be, like living with integrity, you know, being a good friend, you know, being a loving, compassionate person, something that's within your sphere of control, if you said um, the love of wisdom is your ambition, for instance, they would say, no, like, that's, that makes sense. Like, you know, that's something that's in the present moment and within your sphere of control. Um, yeah. that he would equate that with sanity. But not investing too much importance on external goals. Mm. Although the Stoics would say you can pursue external goals lightly, you should just you shouldn't uh, just treat them as all or nothing. Exactly, yeah, they, exactly. They shouldn't be they shouldn't be your all encompassing all your all encompassing thing. Absolutely. So, yeah. James, do you know James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits? Oh He's yeah. Got a really good saying in his book. He says you should create systems, not goals. Like instead of thinking of goals, create a system that will make you the person that is likely to then probably reach the goal. Mm -hmm. but it's always a system because uh, he's got a good phrase like you don't rise to the I'm going to butcher it don't rise to the ambition of your goals you 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 stoop to the quality of your systems basically like you know everybody can say I want this goal but they have like habitual no habitus is it habitus oh yes yeah habitus habitat yeah habito yeah yeah, yeah. the system is basically life isn't it like you becoming your system is you so yeah, you can create a better system. Well, funny, the phrase, actually, there's a very interesting phrase that's used in the, the Greek classics. So they, a lot of modern scholars say it's just interesting we don't use this phrase anymore. So Socrates talks about the art of living, mm -hmm. um, the, the art of living. And so we, you know, this is typical Socrates. He says people think about the art of making shoes. They think about the art of building houses. But no one's talking about the art of living your life. Mm. and approaching it as if it's something that you need a system and need skills yeah. and need wisdom in order to do properly yeah and this is what this is all about of course you know the the, the self-knowledge and the self-awareness which can lead you to yeah less you know less stress and anxiety about the future and and knowing yourself better being a better person um yeah. so yeah the at the end of the poem um the, the last line is carpe diem quam minimum credula postero, which means seize the day. Um, it's actually, carpe means like pluck or enjoy. It's actually used for like flowers and grass. It's often used for like animals if they eat the grass. So it's like a really nice 
um, it's almost like a foodie word. You know, he's like saying, taste the day, pluck the day. Mm. Um, it's a really like a nice word from, from nature. Um, and then he says, um, trust in tomorrow as little as, as, little as possible. Um, so basically he's saying, like it. well, live for now, enjoy what is now. Cause carpe is like, it's a word for, it's a word of enjoyment. It's not like a word of like grabbing. It's actually a word of enjoying and of savoring in the same way that like an animal will savor its grass. You will savor the day. Um, and you will not think too much about tomorrow. He says quam minimum, which means as little as possible. He's not saying don't actually, he's not being too prescriptive. He's saying, do what you can, do what you can to not think about the future because he knows that we're all human. And of course we will from time to time worry about the future. And this is the other thing about anxiety is that, um, you know, we make anxiety worse when we are self-critical and we say, oh, I shouldn't have been thinking about that. Well, it's normal. It's yeah. normal to sometimes just have a bit of a low day and be like, oh, oh, I really wish I could do that. Or I really wish I could do this. Like allowing yourself to, to have those worries is, is part of actually, I think, getting over the worries in the long term as well. It's just allowing yourself to know that they will happen. Yeah, that, um, there's an important point about that as well, where people will say like, I should, I should be grateful for what I've got because I realize there's people in the world die and I feel guilty now that you know, my life is actually quite good, but I, but I feel shit. So they actually get guilty, guilt themselves and into not yeah. most of the day. And it's like, yeah, yeah no, it's a tough one. Just allow yourself to know that you'll slip up because we're only human. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, I really love the metaphor. I mean, it's so famous Carpe Diem, but it's a great metaphor from nature. Um, and again, it's just like reminds us that we're part of this great cosmic cycle. Um, you know, like when Donald talked about the leaves on the trees and reminding us of how, you know, they grow, they, they die, they grow, they die. Um, you know, that we're, we're part of nature as well. Um, I mean, nature kind of carries on, but we are also part of it. Um, and then I'm going to, yeah, so just to kind of um, a little like summing up. So Horace's date, 65 to 8 BC. Carpe diem means um, uh, pluck the day. We kind of think of it as seize the day. Um, means enjoy the day while you're able. Um, and then there's one line which I didn't look at, which is he talks about invida itas, which means envious time. Um, and I just wanted to leave everybody with a kind of little question, which is like, why might he be using the word envy or envious to describe time, which is, I mean, it's not even an inanimate object. I mean, we can't even pin down what time is, right? We can't hold it. It's not a glass. Um, so he's using this word envy, envious to describe time. So I just want to leave people thinking about that. Um, and then I'm just going to whiz through another, oh yeah, in a second. Um, it's a really common trope on sundials um, from like the 19th century on, well, and actually before, um, to put a Roman um, motto to remind us about time. So um, on this picture, we've got, um, there's a sundial from Florida, top left. Um, there's one from um, a mosque on Brick Lane, which is the one in the middle. The blue one is from Norfolk, and the one at the bottom <laughs> is in Cornwall. Um, mm. I think the one, the Cornwall one, is the church where um, the poet John Betjeman is buried there. I think, um, but don't quote me on that. 
Um, and some, so some of the, some of the really nice ones, I mean, some of them are a bit wordy, but umbra sumus means we are a shade. Like we are, a, it means like we are already a ghost. We are already gone. Um, and vita in motu means life in motion as well. So just some really nice little uh, reminders there using these, and they're all lines from Latin poetry as well, by the way. So they're not just made up lines. And some of these lines in Latin that are on sundials are also used to be, particularly in the Victorian era, on clocks and watches um, are some of the most popular ones come from Horace, actually. Yeah. Uh, Tempest Fugit is yeah. a very common one. It means time flies. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've lost oh, Horace had studied Stoicism, like he wasn't, he was kind of into different philosophies, but he and he actually writes a satire, he writes a comedy about Stoicism <laughs> while taking a piss. So they had no emotion or something. What was he doing? That's what I imagine, something along those lines, yeah. Oh, so, wow. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, this one I'm gonna whiz through quite quickly. Um, this is another one of my favorite Latin poems by a poet called Catullus, who um, was uh, a little bit before Horace. He came a little bit before Horace, but he didn't live very long. He, he died when he was about 30. So he's a real child prodigy. He was an incredible poet. Um, and I will try to read this one in Latin. It's really fun. We wamos mea lesbia, quamemus, rumores que senum seweriorum omnes unimus Aistimamus asis, soles occidere et raideri possunt, nobis cum semel occidit brevis lux, nox est perpetua una dormienda, da mi basia mil, de in decentum, de in mile autora, de in secunda centum, de in usqualtre mile de in decentum, de in cumilia multa facumus, contubabamus ila, ne sciamus, Aut nequis malus in ridere posset, cum tantum sciat esse basiorum. Um, and you'll have noticed there was quite a lot of repetition there in um, the middle of the poem. I will tell you what this means. Basia are kisses. Okay, so this is a love poem. And <laughs> he, uh, what he's telling his girlfriend here, she's called Lesbia, his, his, I think fictional, well, I think she's a real woman, but he gives her this nickname, Lesbia. He says, let us live my lesbia in love and let the rumors or the gossip of stern old men um, value at just one penny. Suns may set and rise again. For us, when once the brief light has set, an eternal night must be slept. Give me a thousand kisses, then a hundred, then another thousand, then a second hundred, <laughs> then yet another thousand, then a hundred, then when we have performed many thousands, we'll shake them all into confusion to lose the count. We won't let any evil person envy us as no one will be aware of how many kisses have there been. <laughs> so he's, um, again, you'll notice that there are, there are similar tropes here to, to the Horace poem. Um, he says, um, there's this uh, metaphor from nature. So he says that suns may rise and set. So nature goes on regardless. But um, for us, when our brief light has, has set, um, we will be asleep forever. Um, so uh, as in 
for us, um, he kind of likens a human life to like one day, the rising of the sun, the setting of the sun, and when the sun sets, we're, we're dead. Um, and we will never wake again. Um, but he uses this to kind of remind his girlfriend that it's time to live and love. Vivamus, it means let's live. Amemus, let's love. Um, so he says, let's do all of this. And, and let's also not, this is, I quite like this as well. He's like, don't listen to what other people say. Don't listen to the gossip of other people. Like, let's just have our love affair and enjoy our life and not listen to others. Um, and then he does his wonderful, like, yes, just give me all the kisses. Give me all the kisses right now. And then he imagines like stirring them up um, so that no one can envy them. It's, it's kind of a strange idea that like, uh, if somebody kind of knows how much you've got, it's almost like if somebody knows how much money you've got, they can envy you. So with him, it's like, well, if they don't know how many kisses we have, then they can't really envy us our love. Um, but I'd like you to think about the word envy here as well, because Horace talks about envious time um, as being this enemy of life and love. Um, and uh, I think Catullus as well uses this idea of like an evil person envying the lovers, almost like a, um, as a kind of metaphor for time. Maybe this evil person is time. Um, like, does it mean, does it also mean like, making the most of every day that you lose count by the time you get to the end you've you've lived so many awesome days that you're like fucking class some people yeah. look back and go i've had one holiday when i was 32 and like yeah it was awesome Do you mean yeah i think you're yeah i think that's a really nice i think that's a really nice idea i think that it applies whatever he's applying to kisses in terms of just let's have as many as possible um we should also apply to days to seconds in our life to minutes in our life absolutely um, it's a very, I love this poem so much because it's, he was so young when he wrote it and it's such a fun poem and it's so generous and it's kind of sexy and it's just about like, yeah, life and love, you know, they're in the first line today it, together. It's vivamus and, and amemus. Let's live and let's love. They're in the first line, they're next to each other. He's saying like, basically those are the most important things to him living and loving um and you know and these are things that we can most enjoy i think when we're just enjoying them in the moment as well um, also, I, I can't remember where i read it but maybe it's interstellar where it talks about the only thing that can transcend all of time and everything is love you can get angry you'll die you all are you can love, I can love. Yeah. donald loves marcus aurelius he's connected to marcus who loves you know yeah. same as me. i love marcus aurelius is that's the only thing so, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so yeah, he died really young to tell us, but again, his, his themes are about living and loving in the moment. And again, we have this idea of the natural world enduring and regenerating and his image of the sun rising and setting. Um, but he reminds us, of course, that we only have one life, which he likens to the rising and setting of sun on, on one day. And he also says, ignore the gossip of old men who want to crush our love. Um, and yeah, again, he says, no one evil should envy us. And I'm wondering if this is another metaphor for time. Um, and I think I've just got a last, yeah, just a few little time metaphors just at the end from the poet. So Virgil said, sed fugit interia, fugit irreparabile tempus. Um, but meanwhile, she flees, irrecoverable time flees. Um, 
and Horace, who we who we wrote before, who we read before, um, he writes this poem, which is um, basically about his poetic legacy, and he says, "Exegi monumentum aera perennius quod posit duoere innumerabilis honorum series et fuga temporum." Should remind us of Tempus Fugit. Um, I've built a monument more lasting than bronze, which the countless chain of years and the flight of time cannot destroy. So yeah, here in Virgil and Horace, we've got some, some, uh, some metaphors for time as, as something that flees, that flies, that's winged and, and disappears. You can't hold on to it, basically. Um, yeah, so yeah. I think that's, nice. I think that's me. So thank you. For that was brilliant, loved it. Love the Latin. To it, and I think yeah. I'm going to leave you lovely people, but um, thank you for having me. See thank you, you again. Yes, oh, thank no. you for the, Thank you. Brilliant. Lalia is impermanent. I am impermanent. <laughs> <laughs> she has a sore throat. <laughs> All right. So let's look at some exercises. So, first of all, Maybe I've mentioned this one like a little bit, but it's a quick one, so I'll, I'll just bring it up again. So um, time projection. There are many different forms of time projection in modern cognitive therapy. And this is like my favorite one. So somebody um, is worried about something or, or feeling stressful about something. Um, could be they're worried they're going to lose their job or worried that their partner's going to leave them or something like that. And in therapy, we can often just say, well, we, we talk first of all about turning what if into so what if. So somebody might say, what if the shit hits the fan? So what we want to get them to is the point where they can well, say, well, so what if the shit hits the fan? So what if it does? Mm -hmm. like, and we do that by asking what will probably happen next. So you can view this as a form of decatastrophizing, right? So when people worry about things that make them seem more catastrophic than they are, and that's because they make them seem more permanent than they are, in part. That's part of how we blow things out of proportion. Yeah. And if we look at the bigger picture, and we think of the catastrophe, but we also think of the fact that things will move on and what will happen next, then we're imagining absence and presence at the same time. We're imagining, yes, the shit is going to hit the fan, but then it'll get cleaned up and it'll go back to normal or whatever. So what if the shit does hit the fan? What will probably happen next? Oh, you know, it's going to be all over the place. But then what will probably happen next? Well, I guess we'll have to start cleaning it up and that's going to take ages. And then what will probably happen next? Well, I guess eventually it will all be cleaned up. Right? And then we're going to have to have a shower or whatever. And then <laughs> what will probably happen next? Well, I guess what will probably happen next is we all go to the pub and right, have a, a, a couple of drinks to, to unwind afterwards. And then what will probably happen next? Well, I guess things will return to normal and then we'll move on. So we imagine the problem, but then we move forward to the time when the problem is gone. And it's just a logical way of thinking through. also encourages people to think of ways of coping with a problem, how they might deal with it and respond to it. But normally when people are anxious, they kind of freeze. They get stuck on the catastrophe and they don't move on. Like, and by kind of nudging or prodding your brain so that you move forward and think about what happens next, you're picturing the presence of the catastrophe, but also picturing its absence. You're viewing it as transient or impermanent. And that will tend to 
moderate your feelings of anxiety about it. And it also encourages uh, you to plan ways of coping. So it's really easy to, it's like easy. You know, I get, Scott, I get paid money to do this. Like, <laughs> we've got, what if my girlfriend leaves me? I just go, well, so what if she does? What will probably happen next? Like, I, I, could, just, I could train a monkey to do this. Like, I could, I could get a little therapy monkey. Like, or a parrot or something and sit in the consulting room and go, when someone comes in and they say, what if this happens, right? What I want you to do is go, Mark, so what if it happens? What will probably happen next? <laughs> like, and that's, it's as simple as that. Like, so there are things we do in therapy, luckily, for me to earn my living, like a little bit more complex and nuanced than that. But some of the things we do are really simple and people could do them for themselves. Well, I saw your technique on TikTok uh, the other day. Someone was saying... Next time you worry about something, say it, say it in a really funny voice. Really? Yeah, yeah. And it had loads of likes. So man, I'm missing out on all those likes on TikTok. Yeah, don't TikTok. I should get on TikTok. Well, they, <laughs> down, I'm down with all the kids on TikTok. Like, <laughs> Think of it. You could help Gen Z. I'll be popular with the young people. Like yeah. sneakers. Sneakers <laughs> are popular with young people. So I'm, ah. so I'm Bubble gum <laughs> and things like that. You do it. So um, this is like a, a more complex technique that people really like, and it's used a lot in a modern type of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which is a state-of-the-art evidence-based form of behavior therapy. And uh, it's a meditation technique. And it, it's funny because it kind of resembles a lot of the stuff that we talked about earlier. It uses your, your meditating on a river or a stream. We talked about Heraclitus and Pantare, the idea that everything flows like a, a river or a stream that's an impermanent. So this is almost like if, if Heraclitus was here today and his followers, they should all be doing this meditation technique because it, like, it's right on message for them. So what we normally do, I'll talk you through this. I'll spend a little bit of time on it because it's a very important technique. It's quite easy to teach and it's very powerful. It's good for developing resilience. So what you would do is visualize a stream and so you pick one that's flowing moderately fast and you imagine that you're at a kind of moderate distance from it, high up in the bank looking down on it or maybe on a bridge looking down like you're playing poo sticks or whatever and uh, Winnie the Pooh. And actually the, the image of the river is completely arbitrary. You could pick anything. It could be clouds floating across the sky. It could be a parade marching along with signs or whatever, you know, but generally we pick the stream just because everyone seems to understand it and it's pretty simple, but it's, arbitrary right it's just what we call a centering device it's something that you're voluntarily focusing on that you can keep bringing your attention back to so you pick this river and so that's a voluntary um mental activity and you know one of the most fundamental things in modern therapy i am particularly feel very strongly about about this I, with all my clients i really emphasize that many problems are due to people failing to distinguish between voluntary and involuntary psychological activities like thoughts. Like, so we don't distinguish clearly between thoughts that happen automatically or involuntary and ones that we're doing voluntarily. So if you voluntarily choose to think about a river, you'll probably find that you then notice lots of automatic thoughts. So you'll be trying to think about your river, Scott, and then you'll be, and then you'll suddenly, for no apparent reason, think, what was that Latin thing that Lalia said earlier? You know, Tempest, something I can't remember now. Like, and you'll think, I'm supposed to be thinking about a river. Like this, 
bit of Latin keeps popping into my head. Or you'll think, what am I going to have for dinner tonight? Like, why am I thinking that? I'm trying to be thinking about a river. So you have these automatic, spontaneous thoughts that just pop into your mind. And they might be completely random, or they might be about the river or something like that. But you didn't choose to think of them. They just popped into your mind spontaneously. They're automatic thoughts. And so this exercise helps us to notice the difference between the voluntary and the automatic. So number, there are three cognitive skills that this teaches you, right? So I'm going to tell you exactly what they are. Number one is spotting automatic thoughts, recognizing them, right? So number one, you're going to notice these automatic thoughts. Then number two, you're going to gain cognitive distance. So the way we do that is by, um, if you suddenly think, Nobody likes me, pops in your mind. You imagine that's written on a piece of paper. So you've now turned it into an object that you could look at from a distance, right? So rather than looking through the lens that I put on my glasses, rather than looking at the world through the nobody likes me glasses, right? Just <laughs> this, Scott, right? This is my nobody likes me, everybody hates me glasses. <laughs> oh, man. Right? I could take those off and, and I could look at them like. So by writing it on a piece of paper, I'm looking at the thought rather than looking at the world through that lens, right? So I've got my, nobody likes me. Well, write it on a piece of paper, right? So that's number two. I've now objectified the thought. I've gained cognitive distance from it. But the thought, so by cognitive distance, I mean, um, in part, means I can put the thought over there. I can go, oh, there it is over there on a piece of paper, right? And I put that thought in the river, and so now cognitive skill number three is letting go of it and allowing it to decay naturally, as we say, or allowing it to float slowly down the river. So one caveat is we have to be careful that we're not like flushing it down the toilet, that we're not scared of the thought, that we're trying to get rid of it. But we're watching it just naturally fade into the distance as it goes down the river. So we're not trying to push it away. We're just allowing it to naturally decay. Because automatic thoughts, if you don't argue with them, you don't fight against them, will only last a few seconds normally. They, they, the automatic thoughts naturally decay. And then they come back again, and then they naturally decay. And then they come back again, and naturally decay. And the problem is if we start arguing with our thoughts, or mm -hmm. thinking about them, or elaborating on them, then they get bigger and bigger, and turn into worrying and stress. But the automatic thought in itself doesn't really do that much as long as we, we don't engage with it. So particularly if we can gain distance from it and view it in a detached way. So I'm thinking about this river, and then I suddenly think, what was that tempest fute? And I go, I'll write that in a bit of paper. What was this tempest? Like, I put the bit of paper in the stream, and then I'll, I just lean back and I watch it as it drifts down the river, and I let go of it. And then I suddenly think, well, if nobody likes me, I'll go write that in a bit of paper, put it in the stream, let go of it, just watch as it floats down the river. And then I think, well, I'm thinking, what if nobody likes us come back? But I, like Captain America, I think I could do this all day long. Right? <laughs> so if, even if the thought keeps coming back, I just write it on a piece of paper again. Huh? I'll show you a neat trick. I'll write you on a piece of paper again <laughs> and put it in the river. Right? It comes back a third time, Scott. I'll go write it on a piece of paper again and put it in the river. I could do this all day long. What if you, like, did, what if you, what if you did this in, on a real river with a real piece of paper? Does that have the same impact? I don't know. I've never tried that. You could do you could. <laughs> I'll be there all day tomorrow now. Just right. Right, as long as you don't fall in. So, <laughs> like, 
if it's a, also if you have a memory or an image that pops into your mind, you can go and turn it into a Polaroid, like a photograph, just the same. And then you put it on the river and let go of it and just let it float slowly down the river. And I should say that kind of like you've just demonstrated in a way, when you're doing it, a lot of the automatic thoughts might be about the exercise. So you might be picturing your river. You might think, what if I was to do this in a real river? And then you, you could write that down on a piece of paper, <laughs> put that and let go. Or typically when you do this in a consulting room, the client will think, I wonder how long this stupid exercise is going to go on for or something like that. And you go, right, I don't think I wonder how long this stupid exercise is going to go for and put it in a leaf, uh, put it in the river and, and let it float down the stream like it's a leaf or put it on a leaf and let it float down the river. So you, any automatic yeah. thoughts at all, you're going to spot them or recognize them whether it's a thought or a, a sentence or an image, you're going to turn it into an object, like a photograph or writing on a piece of paper that you can view over there. And you're going to let go of it and allow it to just decay naturally or float away slowly down the river. And then by doing this for like five or 10 minutes a day, you're developing a bunch of cognitive skills that you can then use uh, to be more detached from potentially distressing thoughts so like worries so if something pops in your mind you think i don't really need to be worrying about this i can just do i don't have to visualize a river once i've been doing this for a while the river is like gym equipment right so you're training on the gym equipment to build up your muscles like you're using this image of the river as a way of developing these cognitive skills but i can use those cognitive skills in the same way i can use those muscles without having to have a bunch of weights or a machine or whatever, like once I've got those cognitive skills, if a thought pops into my mind, I can just adopt that attitude of viewing it from a distance and letting go of it. I don't have to get all the apparatus of visualizing a stream. I just know what it feels like. I, I know how to adopt that perspective on it. And so it's really the, the, the river is just an elaborate gimmick for helping you to learn the moves like, so what you're saying is, it's a, it's a way to do cognitive distancing. It's a way to do cognitive distancing, basically. And then, so the other technique I was going to talk about, and so in a way, leaves on the stream happens to be similar to the metaphor of the river of time, of Pantarei, which is very common in, in Greek and Roman philosophy. Um, but you're also learning to view your automatic thoughts as transient. Um, and a big mistake that a lot of people make is they take their automatic thoughts too seriously and they become too engaged with them, like rather than learning to be non-attached and to let go, not only of external things, but even of your thoughts, like of your thoughts about anything, like to view those as transient, superficial, like uh, temporary, something that you can uh, uh, let go from, let go of, you don't have to become entangled with. So I mentioned also the here and now, and how research on worrying shows that it, it's very future-focused. Uh, Tom Borkovic, who's the leading researcher on the psychology of worry, as uh, an American psychologist, he was particularly interested in this idea that you could potentially disrupt worry just by getting people to focus more on the present moment, tune into the, the here and now. And there's an old way of doing that, which was popularized in the 1950s by Fritz Perls, the founder of Gestalt Psychotherapy. Pearls was a pretty wacky maverick therapist. Um, he had a lot of cool slogans though. 
he used to say, lose your mind and come to your senses. And by that, he meant like let go of rumination and worrying, like let go of your overthinking and get grounded in your sensory experience of the present moment, lose your mind and come to your senses. And the way that we do that, he called this the ABC of Gestalt therapy, uh, is by a trick called sentence stemming or sentence completion. And the trick is that when you verbalize something, and it could just be in your head, uh, that forces you to pay more attention to it for longer. Sneaky. Like, so you're tricking your brain into paying attention for longer to your sensory experience by describing it, simple as that. And so you would just say, here and now, I'm aware of the red light shining on top of my microphone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, whoa. Uh, here and now, I'm aware of the white of my slide on the screen in front of me. Here and now, I'm aware of the light glinting off my glass of vinegar and water. And so you just describe the things you can see or that you sense. And normally, you might say right now or here and now, just as a trick to kind of channel your attention, focus it on the present moment to make sure it's grounded. Uh, and the fact that you're putting it into words just takes a few seconds longer. So it kind of pegs your attention for longer than normal to your sensory experience. And then you're going to keep doing that. Um, so you might start off the easy way when I teach this to people, I say, just start off by describing the colors you can see. So right now, uh, I'm aware of the blue light on my camera, uh, my webcam in front of me. You know, right now I'm aware of the, the blue of my shirt on the, on the video stream. And then you could talk about the shape of things. Like right now I'm aware of the wood of the door behind me uh, on the video and uh, the square angles, like the corners of it. And then you could describe physical sensations, like right now I'm aware of an itch on my nose, right now I'm aware of the sensation of my shirt on my arms, my clothing, right now I'm aware of tension in my neck or shoulders or whatever. So it could be physical sensations, the sense of your breathing, your clothing, your posture, like often like little movements or tensions in your body, or it could be sounds you hear right now I'm aware of the sound of the lights humming and I guess it's like a fluorescent light humming in the background. And so the trick is to try and avoid too much interpretation or speculation or analysis or comment and just stick to the bare facts, like try and keep it to the absolute minimum of what you're actually seeing hearing or feeling in the present moment. If you do that for five or 10 minutes, it's actually quite strange. It's quite a kind of psychedelic experience Like you can feel that your attention broadens and becomes much more grounded in the present moment. And the important thing to realize is that that's inherently antagonistic to worrying. Um, in order to really worry about the future, you have to kind of forget about the present moment and I could be grounded in the present moment. I could be noticing the color of the, I don't know what to call that, like sort of burgundy of the wall in front of me. 
and uh, the silver of the uh, up the lamp stand. Um, and I could potentially, if I tried, also think about something bad that might happen in the future. But I'm going to be dividing. At the very least, I'll be dividing my attention. Yeah. So there's a, I've kind of got one foot in the present moment and one foot thinking about the future. And that waters down my anxiety, dilutes the anxiety. In order to really freak out, I'd have to forget about the present and just get tunnel vision and just like think about the shit hitting the fan in the future. Like, but as long as there's a, I've, I've got at least one foot anchored in the present, like my experience is diluted. So my anxiety is not going to be as intense. And actually, if I'm completely grounded in the present, I can barely be thinking or worrying about the, the future at all. So yes. you might think, well, sometimes I have to think about the future because well, maybe the shit is actually going to hit the fan tomorrow. Yeah, but if I can remain at least partly grounded in the present while I'm thinking about it, I can think about it in a more rational and detached mm -hmm. way. And, you know, I can think about it without becoming mesmerized by it like and freaked out by it. I can retain some degree of objectivity and perspective um, by you, being What do you think of um, Dale Carnegie in his book, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, says about prescribing busy to someone, just get busy and then you get in the present, you get into the flow of being busy and then you forget maybe. Does that like a lot of self-help advice. See, this is where I'm going to put my, get into proper therapy mode, right? And you can tell that I'm getting into my proper evidence-based CBT therapy mode <laughs> slagging off self-help. Like, so self-help literature is, is hit and miss, right? Yeah. Because the, a lot of the techniques are things that people have tried and they kind of worked out, um, but they don't really understand exactly why they work. And so sometimes they also backfire. So if you particularly they backfire for people who have severe mental health problems. So if you've got someone who's got generalized anxiety disorder, for example, or obsessive compulsive disorder, like a pathological anxiety disorder, and they read Del Carnegie, and maybe they interpreted that as just working a lot and keeping themselves occupied, that potentially just becomes a form of avoidance behavior. Mm. And avoidance is, every, is already everyone's favorite coping strategy. <laughs> and, the, 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 and the top 10 coping strategies, number one for like the zillionth week in a row is avoidance. <laughs> <laughs> it's there at number mm. one again. Like not everyone's number one favorite coping strategy is always going to be avoidance, right? And keeping yourself busy is a form of avoidance. Mm. And the problem with avoidance is that it doesn't change your response to the thing that's actually freaking you out. It doesn't change your beliefs or attitudes about the thing that's freaking you out. So it's a band-aid potentially, like it glosses over or distracts you from something without really changing the underlying problem. Um, so we don't want to use being grounded in the here and now as a form of avoidance. And that's why I would say that sometimes you might want to divide your attention so that you're aware of the present moment, but you're also thinking about the problem, right? Uh, if you find that you, some, because I'll see clients all the time who go, um, I go swimming. And when I'm doing that, I'm completely at peace. I'm not worrying about the future. And then I go home, I start freaking out again. Mm. So life is a kind of pendulum swing between moments of respite and then moments when they're kind of freaking out, right? Because during the moments of respite, they're distracting themselves.
Like, and so they're not really addressing the problem or changing anything about the way that they think about it. So I believe that we should confront our problems, but do it with cognitive distance like, and do it with emotional acceptance. So do it in a particular, particular kind of way. So on the leaves and the stream exercise, we're not, if I have a, a distressing thought, I'm not thinking I'm going to go and do something else and completely ignore that. Like mm -hmm. I'm acknowledging it. I'm looking at the thought on a piece of paper. I'm letting go of it and I'm waiting while it's slowly just down the stream. That's not avoidance. In fact, you should approach it. And I think it matters what your attitude is. Some people might try and misuse the leaves on the stream exercise as a form of avoidance, like they're flushing the thoughts away. But I think your fundamental strategy should be that you're using the whole thing as a form of acceptance. So it's a way of, think of it not as a way of avoiding automatic thoughts, but as a way of learning to accept them in mm -hmm. a more manageable way. So I think, shit, maybe everybody hates my guts. So I have that, maybe I, I, I have an automatic thought. Maybe, 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 uh, maybe Scott doesn't like my beard, right? And I have this, I say, Scott likes my beard funny. Maybe he doesn't like it, right? So I have this automatic thought. I have this anxiety sometimes, right? I write it on a piece of paper. Or he doesn't like my shirt. Like, and I, I write it on a piece of paper. And I can look at that piece of paper from a distance. That's a way of accepting the thought without being overwhelmed by it. It's rather than avoiding it. And I put it in the river and I wait for it to slowly drift down the river. Again, I should approach that as a form of acceptance rather than a form of avoidance. It's a way of allowing me to entertain the thought in a detached manner for like a few seconds or whatever, and then accept it if it comes back again and do the same thing again. Like, if I, I, I go and watch Netflix, or I'm not going to, I'm just going to get drunk and watch Netflix. Like, that's avoidance. Yeah. I think you should write a blog post on this. I think it's an important point. Do you know? Yeah, blog post, Scott. Right, a man can write many blog posts in life. Self help is people get addicted to self help, don't they? They do. I, I mean, I'll be, I, I kind of like doing this because it kind of provokes people a little bit. But actually, people people don't normally. I, I think people are ready to have self help slagged off a little bit. Usually, they go, "Yeah, you're right." But where it's really obvious is probably in particular if you're dealing with people who have obsessive compulsive disorder (OCD). And in fact, there are a cluster of mental health problems that are kind of cousins of OCD that are, are kind of related to it a little bit, um, like health anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder, are also a little bit like OCD and uh, people with OCD often use self-help techniques in it and those become the C, the compulsions of OCD. So they'll compulsively and, and then back in the day, like people with OCD might compulsively pray or mm -hmm. they might compulsively count rosary beads or they might compulsively uh, wash their hands or they might compulsively repeat a little rhyme in their head or do a, perform a little ritual because they feel as if these compulsions protect them from their anxiety or from a, a perceived threat. So they kind of get hooked on like doing them over and over again sometimes. And uh, self-help techniques can become compulsions easily for people with OCD. So they'll compulsively try and control their breathing or they'll compulsively repeat a mantra or do some kind of visualization exercise or something like that. 
So sometimes it's not what you do, it's the way that you do it that determines whether it's healthy or unhealthy psychologically. And uh, we can become overly dependent on some of these strategies, especially if we're using them as a way of kind of fending off anxiety. Sometimes we have to confront our anxiety and allow it to wash over us in order. Uh, uh, the best way of understanding it is that really ultimately what will help you, what we know from research and therapy, like what the most robust finding in the entire field of psychotherapy research is that your brain is actually quite capable of digesting unpleasant emotions and processing them and getting coming out the other side, right? So your brain has a natural capacity for what we call emotional habituation. So if you're anxious about something uh, and you confront your fears, like if you are patient and you wait it out, your anxiety should naturally abate over time. If you do it repeatedly and for long enough and some other variables are uh, in play that are uh, conducive under appropriate conditions, we might say, like anxiety will abate naturally. Um, if you have a, a horse and it's freaked out by loud noises, but you gradually expose it to loud noises patiently over time, it'll get used to them eventually, it'll habituate. Animals, even um, primitive animals like shellfish and stuff, habituate to unpleasant stimuli, stimuli. You, you, they get used to things over time. And it's, so it's very, very deep seated in our, our nature. And this is why avoidances and distraction techniques and things like that are, are problematic because they prevent normal, healthy emotional processing from being able to, to take place. You have to face your fears, you, you, like usually in order to get beyond them. And a lot of self-help techniques are actually strategies um, for people to avoid facing their fears. You're right. Which feels good. It's like a Band-Aid, like, oh, you know, you know, uh, you know, maybe if I do this, like, you know, I can avoid my anxiety, but uh, it's a quick fix. It doesn't really cure the problem. And, and the irony is the cure for the problem is, is something that's already built into your operating system. Like, yeah. you, you know, you already have this kind of self-correcting mechanism that's like nature gave you. Um, but we, you know, we, we're, we've got all these ways of preventing it from working, unfortunately. So, I, well, I should mention also the last technique um, is a, something I've maybe mentioned a little bit before is the view from above. So this refers back to Heraclitus and the idea of pantheism like the, or holism, thinking about the whole of the universe and thinking of ourselves as being, uh, rather than just isolated individuals, as being part of something bigger, cells within the body of a larger organism. So many ancient philosophers would practice this technique of trying to picture events seen from high above or just trying to imagine the whole of space and time. So Marcus Aurelius says, imagine the present moment as if it's a grain of sand within the vastness of universal space, or as if it's merely the turn of a screw within the vastness of universal time. But you mentioned earlier, the, the whole history of the human race. If you wrote an encyclopedia that described the, the history of the planet Earth up until this point, the history of the human race would be like one sentence 
you know, if it was in a, 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 an encyclopedia like 100 volumes long, right? And so thinking of, of the present as being this, both in space and time, this tiny corner of the universe, allows us actually to confront stuff that's happening. So I can continue thinking. Um, it's not avoidance, because I might continue to think about something that's stressing me out, like I've, I've just lost my job, but I'm also thinking about other stuff. Like, so it's like being grounded in the present moment, but maybe also thinking about the future. I'm spreading my attention out, I'm dividing my attention. So I am thinking about the fact that my girlfriend's dumped me or whatever, but I'm picturing that within a bigger context. So I'm thinking about, it, it's just, that's just one small corner of a bigger picture. And that will tend to water down or dilute my emotional response. And the Stoics say that, that that's a reality though, because it is just one corner of a bigger picture. And so if you feel more equanimity, like when you picture the whole of space and time, that's what you should be feeling. That's the truth. Like reality is the totality. And when you ignore that and you think of the catastrophe and isolation, the weird thing is people think, but that's the truth. My girlfriend did dump me. It's not though. Like in court, you swear an oath, put your hand in the Bible, Scott, like... And you swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The whole truth. The whole truth. The whole truth. Not just part of it. Because telling a partial truth is a lie. It's called a lie of omission. We call that when you leave information out. So my girlfriend dumped me is a lie of omission. Like, it's not the whole truth. So my girlfriend dumped me, but also I've just met someone else. It's a different story. Like, well, my girlfriend dumped me because I was having an affair. It's a different story. Like, with somebody else. And my girlfriend dumped me because I wasn't very nice to her. It's like, bigger picture is a different story, right? It's not the whole truth. Like, there's always a bigger story. And bigger story is also going to be like, what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? Like, how am I going to move on? And so the Stoics would say that the, really the only whole truth is the whole story of the history of the universe and your place within it. But from that perspective, individual setbacks don't really matter that much. They, they seem trivial. And the Stoics would say, but that's reality. Like, and so when we say my girlfriend dumped me and I take it out of context, uh, and there isn't any context, there isn't any bigger story, I'm deceiving myself. Like, it's selective thinking, mm. right? It's taking something out of context. It's a lie of omission, right? And we all know, even the legal system, like understands that taking truths out of context like uh, is a form of deceit like it's a type of lie we're lying to ourselves all the time like because it's the very nature like we talked earlier about how thinking is abstraction like in order to think we have to be selective like but sometimes you know that exaggerates our distress our anxiety our fear and our sadness are amplified by the way that we abstract information. And the Stoics said, we, we need to make this effort to broaden our, our perspective. So one way of doing that is like Zeus looking down from Olympus. They would say, just imagine events as if you've seen them from high above. Now I'm in Athens at the moment. And uh, Marcus Aurelius, when he describes us, I don't know if I told you, Scott, like there's a famous passage where Marcus says the, the mind uh, free from violent passions is like a, a mighty citadel. And I thought, oh, that's a cool quote. Like, people often quote that. 
And I thought, one day I thought, probably I've been talking to Lalia. I thought, what's the Greek word for citadel? And I, I thought, I'm kind of curious, what word did they use? So like, uh, my Greek's pretty rusty. So I've, I've read the Greek of the meditations, but I hadn't looked up that passage. Looked up, it's Acropolis, right? Of course. Acropolis in Greek literally means high up part of the city. So acro, like acrobat, and polis, like metropolis, acropolis, high up part of the city. So it's a hill, like in the picture in front of you. Many ancient towns were based around hill forts. So there'd be a hill, and people would farm the land at the bottom. And then when the barbarians came to rape and pillage and get them all, they'd all run up the hill, like behind their wooden palisade, and they'd defend themselves up there. So many towns grew around hills and Athens is like that. There was a fort at the top and then eventually it became a temple. It's a temple to Athena, the patron goddess of wisdom and of Athens. And so Marcus says it's the, the view from the Acropolis uh, and the Acropolis lo looks down on the Agora. And in fact, in fact, in another passage, he says, imagine as though from some high watchtower, you're looking down on all the events of human life, the arguments in the law courts, marriages and divorces, people buying and selling things. And he says, looking down on agoras, marketplaces, city centers. Well, the famous agora is the Athenian agora, which actually is what you can see in the picture. You're seeing the ruins of the agora and the Acropolis looks down upon it. So he's described, he's literally describing the view from the Acropolis looking down on the Agora, where all the crazy stuff happens, like all the drama Scott, like happens in the in the in the shopping mall, like in the city center and the high street. Like, and in fact, when you're looking down from the Temple of Athena, like and the Agora, one of the things you'd be looking down on is the place where Socrates was put on trial and executed. Mm. As though from the perspective of the gods, it seems very far below, like just yeah. the unfolding, like people like ants below. And so this, uh, the view from above trains us to acknowledge the drama of something, even like the, the trial and execution of Socrates, but to see it as part of a bigger story. Like, um, but it's when we zoom in too much on things that we feel overwhelmed by them. It's important. I like it. Uh, you mentioned earlier, like, self-deceit i've read there was this book with loads of like epigrams and you'd like this one the first step to self-defeat is the practice of self-deceit how's about that for a little cool miniature poem it's true though i, like I think it's self-deceit is everyone's favorite form of deceit <laughs> yeah, like, it's the number one like most popular like it's we true. don't think we're doing it. We don't think we're self we, 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 we We lie to ourselves so long that they become truths to our mind. And it's like, that's the problem, isn't it? And Socrates would say, you, you know, there's a lot of weird things hidden in ancient philosophy that are kind of almost assumptions or implicit in them, like that are quite fundamental. So one of the things that's most fundamental about like really everything that Socrates says is that Socrates says, look, we, we can think. Right, we're capable of using language and reason, and other animals can't. Like, or rather, they do, but nowhere like to the extent that humans do. Monkeys can use tools. They can fish out termites by using a, a, a twig, and stuff like that. Um, but monkeys don't write novels. 
Like, you know, they don't, they don't plan their, their, their future in the way that we do. Um, because we use language in order to conceptualize things. And like, we, you know, we achieve a whole different, a whole nother level by mm -hmm. writing poetry, like the Latin poetry that Laudia was reading earlier. And Socrates' basic point is that thinking is like a process that we engage in, the goal of which is to arrive at the truth. Like we use reason in order to, to figure things out and get to the truth. And it, deceiving ourselves would be like using the tool badly. Like we're already committed to doing this. We already have this job. We can't avoid it. You know, we, we already pop into the world running this race of trying to think. Like, you know, we're, like, you know we're, we're there we're already. We're stuck in it. Like we're thinking, trying to get to the truth. And Socrates says, well, like, obviously, the way he puts it is, no one thinks in order to be wrong. He said, the very process of thinking itself is implicitly committed to the achievement of truth. And so he says, uh, when we deceive ourselves, we're, we're just, we're doing it badly. Like, and we, we have a kind of obligation, we have a sort of duty to ourselves to use reason properly. Like what if the job's the worth doing, it's worth doing well. What if the truth is something we don't want to be true? We're too scared, we're too we're pained by it that we just don't want to go down there. So well, for the the you know, often um, it's by confronting our pain that we process it. Kind of like I was, I was saying earlier, the irony is that in order to overcome anxiety, we normally have to face it and accept it and allow our brain to process the emotion naturally to for emotional habituation to occur like i said earlier that's how all animals are designed like the by exposing themselves to things that make them feel anxious the anxiety abates naturally um if nothing dangerous happens so we you know and we need to we need to understand threats in order to deal with them appropriately so we need to, even if we were to decide whether we want to avoid something or not, we need to know the truth about it in order to make that decision. Yeah. Everything always comes back to like, our ability to grasp the truth. And Socrates thought, well, we'll, we'll, people kind of do everything in their power to avoid this responsibility, but it's the one fundamental responsibility that we all share, like to be honest with ourselves and to think rationally and to try and actually figure out the truth. And Socrates thought if we use, the way the Greeks would phrase that, phrase that is to say that we should use reason well. And if we use reason well, that would be the virtue of wisdom. It would be the love of wisdom, as Socrates calls it, our philosophy. So to use reason well, it's like we've got this toolbox and it's our duty to use the tools properly. Like we have the toolbox of reason. It's our duty to, to use that toolbox properly. And if we were doing that, that's what we call wisdom. Mm -hmm. It's the like art that. of living wisely. That's what Socrates calls philosophy. It's the art of living, like, or the art, like the art of um, applying wisdom to daily life. And, uh, you know, he thinks the key to it, for him, the, the number one thing, maybe I mentioned this before, is getting rid of contradictions. Like, so he says, look, if you're contradicting yourself, then that can't be true. It, it's, a, it's impossible for a contradiction to be true, really 
like you have to resolve the, the contradiction somehow or other. So he says, you're, this is your safest way, like the easiest way to become more rational, like is just a spot where you're being a hypocrite or contradicting yourself. Like, what if someone's life is that? Is riddled with contradictions. Yeah, is that someone who's confused, someone who's like lost, like what's going on there? Yeah, Socrates would say, you know, then that's that's vice, that's folly, you know, like uh, whatever you want to say about it, that's not like that's not where we want to be. It's mm-hmm. not it's not healthy. Um, in fact, the, the ancient Greeks and Romans call it. They they refer to it as they just refer to it as a kind of insanity. So they they say foolishness is a sort of insanity. Like that's actually what they say and Socrates says um, you know uh, we all want to everyone wants to be sane and rational like, but none of us are really, really put much effort into trying to achieve that like, except you know for him that's what philosophy was about yeah yeah it is harder yeah he said, there's a, Marcus really has quotes Socrates. Let me try, let me get this right from memory. There's a dialogue, there's a dialogue. I don't know if this is one that actually survives. I feel like it might be, it seems to be a fragment of a lost dialogue that Marcus really is quoting. And he says, Socrates said to people, um, would you rather have rational souls or irrational souls? And they said, well, rational souls, obviously. And Socrates said, well, why are you not trying harder to achieve reason then? Mm. And they said, because we already have it. And Socrates said, well, if you already have it, then why do you keep quarreling with one another? <laughs> Which is a really weird little dialogue, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of something that Epictetus says. He said that to his students, you should emulate Socrates. He should be your role model. And many people today would think, oh, does that mean what he said about Plato's theory of forms or, you know, um, or the words that Plato put in his mouth, or like some of it's quite theoretical or what he says about virtue or, you know, what he says about justice and things like that. But Epictetus says something really quite surprising to his students. He says, no, the number one thing you should learn from Socrates is how to avoid quarrels. And he said, uh, he said, Socrates was really good at debating really profound subjects like justice, politics, you know, beauty, like controversial things, religion, without it turning into an argument. He was adept at questioning people very deeply and, t- and talking about sensitive subjects um, in a really polite, uh, amiable way, like without upsetting anyone, until he got executed. Like, but generally, <laughs> he was good at having these conversations. And hard. it's hard to do, very hard to do. Mm, that's just what's missing in modern society, right? So now look at America in particular, and also Britain, and how people talk about politics on the internet, and the way that everything just turns into an argument, yeah, like really quickly, right? And it's the, that is the opposite of everything that Socrates stood for. Like this idea that people would just start name calling. He refused to do that. And when people tried to insult him, he would just make it into a joke, like and drag the conversation back to, to doing philosophy. 
well, it's even worse now, Donald. People aren't even speaking to the other side because they think they label them immediately as the right as racist, which, you know, there's truths in everything, obviously, but you can't just label someone who's right-wing racist and you can't label the left, you know, like whatever they label the left and they don't even chat. They won't even hear the, the other side. There's exaggeration in it as well. Like, you know, so especially I noticed in America, if someone's a left-wing, they'll, they'll, they'll just call them a communist if someone's right-wing they're a nazi yeah. so it's like you immediately get labeled as the most extreme form and and then yeah. that makes it impossible you can't negotiate with a nazi you can't like negotiate with the comic yeah but like they, that's not who they are like most of these people have more moderate views than that and you could negotiate with them in fact you probably share some views with them fundamentally 100 percent. socrates was also good at saying look even if you disagree with people like he believed that deep down there are things that you agree on there's common ground and like it goes without saying maybe that in a debate you have to try and find the common ground in order to be able to have a, a conversation with the other person but in politics for some reason because the tribalism people kind of are motivated to deny that there's any common ground at all like and that just cuts off like any line of communication um yeah. You know, we should be doing the opposite of that and trying to identify similarities so that we can open up channels of communication. That's the only way you educate or change people or educate or change yourself. I'll tell you another, there's something else I want to leave you with, Scott, and it's a paradox and it doesn't come from Socrates, right? It comes from Epicurus. And, uh, but, you know, I wrote an article about how you'll find the same thing in the Stoics as well. I told this to my little girl and she, like, I, I like to talk to her about philosophy that sometimes she agrees with me and sometimes she doesn't. And she was like, I'm not sure about this one, daddy. Right. And I said, you know, a long time ago, there was a philosopher called Epicurus. And uh, most people think that when you're getting an argument with someone, you should try and win the argument, right? It's good to win an argument and it's bad to lose an argument. But Epicurus said uh, that the person who loses an argument is actually the one who gains the most, paradoxically, ironically, because they learn something, potentially, at least they have the opportunity to learn something, whereas the person who wins the argument doesn't really gain anything. Like, true. But Epicurus said, ironically, you guys are desperately trying to avoid losing arguments, but it's by losing arguments that you actually learn stuff. People are scared to lose arguments, aren't they? They're frightened to be proven wrong. Yeah. But that means, that, you know, again, it's a, void, it's a form of avoidance because they're anxious. But be, by allowing themselves to be wrong sometimes, make mistakes sometimes, and experience anxiety, that you actually grow and learn and develop as a human being. And then, you know, we wouldn't uh, be in the pickle that we're in, maybe. It's true. I but like then, Scott, if everyone was wise and enlightened, life would be boring. You know, like we kind of need uh, folly and vice and corruption in the world. That this is the Stoics say this as well. It, it's one of the great ironies of life. So sometimes people go, oh, it's really annoying. I mean, wouldn't it be better if everybody was rational and we're all enlightened and we could just live in this perfect world? No, it'd be rubbish, it'd be really boring. Like, like in fact, you know, we need some things to be wrong in the world because you know, life is all about trying to overcome obstacles. It would be, it'd be like um, the labels of Hercules, the choice of Hercules, you know, like, wouldn't it be great, you know, if everything was just easy? No, it'd be rubbish. Like, because you need 
challenges in life. Well, you don't want too many challenges so that you're overwhelmed by them. But you don't want zero challenges either because that'd be deadly boring. We'd all die of boredom. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at look at it as well. I think as well, have you seen, there's a story of um, this kid who like puts uh, jet fuel into this really rich guy's engine or something and it's like the wrong fuel and if the guy went in the plane, he would have died, right? And the guy, instead of like going after this student kid and be like, you're an idiot, get out, he said, you're filling my plane up tomorrow because I know you won't make that mistake again. And he let him have the mistake and own it and then actually be able to spring back immediately after the mistake. Most people will be, they get scared or they get told down, don't they? then they don't get a chance to, to learn or rebound from it. That's the main thing, problem, I think. Is that, yeah, it's a good story. Fair play to him. I'd have lost my head. That's a good I would, story. I would have gone, mate, you could have killed me. Slap. Do you know what I was going to say earlier? Do you know you're saying find common ground? Look, watch Bruno by Sasha Baron Cohen when he has uh, the two, the, the Hamas and whoever, the two organizations that hate each other. And he starts talking about hummus. And they're like, fucking hell, it's, it's, it's hummus as a food. And he's like, oh, so you like hummus? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, you like hummus? And he's like, yeah. He's like, all right, hold hands. <laughs> you both like hummus. This is the start. And he got him to agree on hummus being healthy. That was the start. That is something that everyone can agree on. <laughs> yeah. I think. And he's uh, then he could have grown from it. But yeah, people say if when if we're not thought, like, yeah, what do you what do you call a baby peacock? Who? A baby peacock. Baby peacock. Ooh, I don't know. Shouldn't it be called a chickpea? Chickpea, yeah. Or a pea chick. <laughs> a pea chick. Yes, a pea chick. When was the last time you saw a peacock? Uh, recently. Really? Like, I took a photograph of one, a weird-looking one, actually. Well, I'm in Greece, you know, so sometimes, like, things are look a bit weird. So it's a kind of weird-looking peacock. Um, where did I see it? Like, a few weeks ago, um, I went somewhere, and there was a, a, like, there were some weird peacocks. Yeah, and they're really loud. They make a really weird noise as well. They're, they're loud. They are mesmerizing, though. They're like really, there's a there's one in um, Holland Park in London. It's like a wild one, and it goes in the street sometimes. But it's there, and when it opens, it's. Do you know why there are peacocks everywhere? Right. This will blow your mind, buddy. Right. Because yeah. the Romans took peacocks and gave them to tribal chieftains as gifts. No, you lie in. Like when they were negotiating and stuff, they went. And we've brought you a peacock. <laughs> Maybe like some German guy or whatever. It'd be like, what is that thing? I've never seen anything like that before. Like, and like I'm having that in my garden. There's more where that came from. <laughs> like, but you know, you need to uh, like you need to stay on our side in the upcoming war and all that, you know. That's like that's not a problem. Like, I've got a bunch of guys that will fight for you. Well, then there'll be more peacocks where that came from. And, like, and then he'd be like, uh, people would come around his house to be like, where did you get that thing? And he's like, wouldn't you like to know? Like, meet my other buddy. Like, in my garden. Like, in the they flower They're like a moving flower, like a moving garden. Are they, are they, where are they from? Or where did the Romans get them from? Well, they came from originally, like, uh, like the Middle East somewhere, I don't know. Is it? 
where are the indigenous to peacocks? Maybe somebody can tell us in the in the comments. Peacocks and the yeah, because they they are strange. Like they are like you know there's nothing like them really. Like is there is there an animal that has such a huge? It's like a show. They literally put a show on. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's actually that that's what you'd get lost in the moment, Donald. If you want to live in the here now, go and watch a peacock. Look at a peacock. Because yeah. you'd be waiting for it and then it happens, and you're like, oh, then you get on your phone. They come from India. Oh my god, the Romans. Where are we? Did they come from India? Right? Or maybe they did come from India. But they must have been here for a long time, like because they um they they were a symbol okay. in ancient mythology. They were used as a symbol of the goddess Hera. And so they kind of symbolized. Um, Hera is the, the queen of the, the gods. Indeed. She's quite Zeus. So she's kind of associated with queens and empresses. And uh, the, so the peacock is kind of like a regal animal. Uh, That's mad. I think it, maybe it did come from India, but then it must have... Sri Lanka. India, Sri Lanka. Makes oh, yeah. sense though. They're quite they're quite big. But you know, like the Romans would take were Romans like use were they capturing like tigers and stuff as well or what? Yeah. yeah. Oh, they brought a lot of them back. I'll tell you a crazy story. The Emperor Commodus, they didn't put this in Gladiator. They should well, maybe it's too much. But this is a crazy, there's some kind of gory, there's a lot of gory stuff in ancient history, right? Crazy stuff that you wouldn't even believe. Um but one of the weird things, so the Romans used to like to hunt animal, like, and the more exotic, the better sometimes. So in the Colosseum, they would um, like be bringing giraffes and hippopotamuses and tigers and bears and, you know, all sorts of creatures. And uh, Commodus got special arrows made with like a crescent moon shaped head, allegedly. And they released lots of ostriches into the Colosseum and he used these arrows to shoot all their heads off. Like, and then they ran around like headless chickens or headless, <laughs> headless ostriches in the Colosseum. So oh, even that, they kind of think, wow, you couldn't make that up. Like, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty strange. Like, if they put that in the movie Gladiator, like, <laughs> apart from, you know, animal rights, people be, being upset about it probably, like, just freaking some people out. You think, that can't be true. In the Roman histories, like they tell us that that's what you did. That's the glad. I was speaking to someone earlier, mind about gladiators. Like, imagine that was like football. Like, it's nuts. You think you go into this game and then you see people get literally beheaded, mm -hmm. and killed. It must have been a hell of a buzz in a weird way. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh my god. So that's what. Yeah. I'll tell you something really weird. Gladiators were the rock stars of their day, and. This is true, like ain't there are ancient authors, Galen in particular, if I remember rightly, is the one who talks about how Roman women were um, perceived to be inf totally infatuated with gladiators. Same so, as today. And they, he talks about how like some of these guys have only got one ear and they've got like their eyes all gouged out and it's always dripping with pus and stuff. But he's like, it's always surrounded by a big crowd of, of women. Like, so Galen talks about like, these guys, like, are all gnarly, like, from all the fighting and stuff, but they are like sex symbols in ancient Rome. Well, we haven't changed, do we? <laughs> the humans haven't changed at all. Look at sports people. Exactly the same, isn't it? Stars and things, maybe. 
Like it's similar. There's, there's weird parallels. Like you know, um, that poets were like the musicians of the day. So like uh, mm-hmm. orators and poets were like big rock stars in the ancient world. They could become fabulously wealthy. And I can uh, imagine orators, yeah, because they would have got a crowd. You're like, oh look at him, a bear, look at him, beaming. Well, Lalia was reading Catullus and Horace. Like those guys would have been also like kind of like rock stars, sex symbols in their day. Um, the Queen, poets. Freddie Mercury, uh, like on stage reciting the poem. Freddie Mercury or something, yeah. <laughs> oh, same with the captains that were. Same with the captain. Yeah, uh, yeah. Airline captains. Airline captains. Okay, they get mm-hmm. all the attention. Why are pilot like pilots? You know, obviously it's, it's a tough job. And what I was in is, it's not well, it's quite safe, isn't it? But yeah, they're like rock stars pilots. If you went back to the seventies, even more so, wouldn't they? Oh yeah, nineties. Yeah, that was like. If you're a pilot, change how things like that change over time. Like yeah, back in the day, it was like uh, it was it was more cool. Now it's authors, Donald. So you're in luck. It's authors like me that are, you know, like the, you know, really rock and roll. The rock and roll. I like it in movies and in TV series where they have like a, a successful author and they, they live these kind of exciting, glamorous lives and stuff, right? But what they don't say is 99% of it is spent hunched over a typewriter or in a little dark room in your own going like... <laughs> like so it's like we were saying earlier, you know, be careful what you wish for. He's like, oh, great, I've got another book to oh, no, I've got to sit and write it. Like, you know, you think, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know I'd actually have to, to write a book. Like, it's kind of, it gets a bit boring after a while sometimes. I can't it's, complain. At least I'm not working down a coal mine or something like that, you know? True. I mean, have you heard Robert Green talk about his writing? He says he nearly dies and stuff. He's like, I nearly died writing this book. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know... Like, people are amazing. Like, you know, if you're into something, I've written about what I do when I'm writing books. And, and I wrote a thing. There was a thing on Twitter about harsh advice for writers or something. And I went, because sometimes people ask me, I just kind of rattled off, well, I do this and I do that and I do that. And some guy kind of replied and said, well, you know, like it sounds too much like hard work or if that's what it involves, then count me out kind of thing or whatever. And I was like, no, that just seems like normal to me, you know? Yeah. Like you have your little routine that you get into and stuff. Like if you're serious about doing something, you don't really you get used to it and you don't think it's like that big a deal. Um but yeah. writing can take over. Well, yeah, I was like that as well, actually. Like we both work all day, like uh every day. Like uh this will shock you, Scott. Like it was my birthday and the twenty seventh of December and or Christmas Day and Boxing Day and my birthday. I just worked all day as normal. So I don't, I don't take public holidays. Like, so, <laughs> and I work, I get up in the morning, I'll do my exercises or whatever, and I'll kind of like, you know, go to the shops and things like that. And then basically I'll just work. Like, I don't watch TV or anything like that. Um, take little breaks and things like that. But like, I'm yeah. kind of happy with, uh, with that routine. Because um, yeah. I like what I do. And I'm very lucky to be able to do it. It's not work for you, is it? Think about it. It's yeah, like a hobby. I'm just doing a hobby, basically. Yeah. But then, yeah. you know, I think sometimes people, when people say, um, they, sometimes if you want to succeed at something, you have to be prepared to make certain sacrifices, right? And when I talk to a lot of people that are starting off in business or they're trying to start as a therapist or they're trying to start as an author, 
Like sometimes I think what's holding them back is they're not willing, they're not actually willing to put in the number of hours or the effort or make the sacrifices that other people might make in order to become successful. They only see the tip of the iceberg. They see your books, bestseller. They see you doing podcasts with, with this community. They're like, oh my God, I need that. But they don't see your everyday working hours on end, researching, writing. That's like the musicians. They kind of think, you know, they want to be a rock star or whatever, but they don't think of like the endless hours of practicing and stuff like people have gone through in order to kind of... I, I think also, you know, like a lot of people today... Um, they, they kind of want instant success, don't they? And, and social media ho- holds out like that, uh, like promise to people. Like, social media is like the lottery these days because you could, you, something you do could go viral, right? I like yeah. that guy, dog face guy where he did that sip the cranberry juice and then he got, you know, cra- mm. that car. Like it's like with the lottery, there's no, there's not even a point thinking you will go viral because you're just putting your hopes in it, it's going to crush you. No point. Otherwise, he's just going to keep holding like, oh, I do this all viral bullshit. I think the best, like, you know, if you want to succeed, like, first of all, you have to accept that you can't guarantee it. Like, there's, you know, it's not entirely under your control. I, over the years, I've worked with many successful people, authors and businessmen and things, and I've noticed most of them, if I ask them about their lives, they'll, when they look back on it, they'll say there was a lot of hard work. Like there was a lot of studying, there was a lot of research, whatever, was long hours and stuff that they put in. But they'll also tend to say there was also quite a lot of lucky breaks or yeah. opportunities. If I look back over my life, you know, if the, the things that really stand out for me, you know, I was working, working, working. But then there were things that happened that were, seemed like opportunities that came along or luck. And I guess the thing is that some people won't seize those opportunities. Like I also see a lot of people opportunities just go straight past them. And then, but if you grab, but there's certain type of people that will grab onto an opportunity when it comes up, but still there's an element of luck in it. Uh-huh. You know, you're in the right place at the right time or whatever, um, and things work out for you. But, uh, uh-huh. you know, it's a combination. It was uh, a combination of perseverance, I think, combined, you know, determination to succeed and all that kind of stuff, but combined with a certain amount of luck or opportunity. And I think you really have to just focus on doing what you're passionate about, right? And what you've, or to put it another way, you know, what you value, what's consistent with your core values. Because for a start, if you're really doing that, I think you're more likely to succeed. But it takes time. Like when I first, I started writing books and things like that. It took me a while, really. um, Were you a good writer? Were you always uh, a good writer or did you suck balls back in the day? Well, I mean, I still don't really think of myself as a writer in a weird way, like, but I was, um, to be honest, when I was a kid at school, I was quite good at creative writing. Mm. And then I didn't really bother with it. I kind of, I remember I wanted to be a writer when I was like a a wee boy. And then at at some point I kind of lost interest in it. And then I, and then I just kind of like stumbled into it again later in life. But by the time I actually became a writer, I thought, well, I'm not really that bothered about this anymore. Like, but I thought it's kind of cool. I get to talk about stuff that I'm interested in. Like, yeah. but I don't have this kind of burning desire anymore to be like a best-selling author. Like, I just think of it as like, you know, a, like a, a bonus that I get to discuss my hobby. 
And uh, did, you, did you do any uh, training on writing, or did you just you were just good writer and you just did it? I, think so. um, I just read. I think the main thing that helped me was I read a lot of books, and I the main thing that helped me is that I had I you know I can meet a lot of people that want to become writers. When you write a book, when you pitch a book, like when you do a book proposal to a publisher, you you usually have to like do a proposal document and you'll talk about the book you're going to write. But you also have to talk about yourself. Like mm. the publisher will say, why should you write this book? And I think one of the biggest obstacles for authors, especially young people, by the very fact that they're young, is that if they're asked to kind of explain why, you know, why would you be the best person to write this book? They often don't have an answer to that question. And what gives you an answer to that question is often life experience or a career behind you or whatever. So the thing that was a big advantage to me was that I had a career as a psychotherapist. And so yeah. the publishers would say, why should you write a book about stoicism and CBT? And I go, because I've been a CBT practitioner for a long time and I have a degree in philosophy. And they go, oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> like, boom. But then other people come along to me and they go, I want to write a book about CBT and stoicism and pitch it to a publisher. And I go, well, like, have you done degrees in philosophy and have you been like, you know, practicing it? No, I haven't. Like I just decided I'm interested in it. And like that, like that's good. You know, it's good to do that, but it's going to be hard. It's harder to sell to a publisher. Like, and so I think again, if people want instant success and they haven't kind of like done all of the, the work in order to, to get there. You um, can tell, you can, I can tell when someone's writing, if they got that like fire or like that, in a like thing about it like you read your writing you know you're on about it some people will like read your book and then retype it reword it, and then like you know put that out there and then it's like it says the right same things but it doesn't have that like it's, it's hard to explain it doesn't have that essence in the book coming yeah. from the author i used to think um, i used to worry some people worry about plagiarism like I, when, when you start writing you think well people copy my stuff on the internet now like a lot of the things that i've written not so much, I don't think my books, but um, articles that I've written, I'll often see other people have like copied them. Like, and uh, even some well-known authors and stuff, I've like, I read a new article, I think that seems very familiar to me. I'm pretty sure I wrote that. <laughs> like, but you kind of like have to not, I think it's bound to happen. And you have to kind of think, yeah, but differences. I actually understand it. Yeah. Like, you know, I it was me that thought <laughs> in the first place, right? And I could I could write another one like again because I understood it because I researched it. Like person that just copies it from somebody else doesn't really understand where it came I, from. Yeah. And they get it slightly wrong and stuff. Like so Do you know they call uh, you? Do you know they call you? Basically, I did this like content thing before. They call people like you coal mines which are similar to a gold mine where they know they can just go to where you post stuff and it is a treasure trove of information they can just use and repurpose. So these single people like you out. Yeah. But it's, uh, I'm quite happy because, you know, I, I, I don't, um, I don't need to like, uh, achieve any credit. success. Like, you know, um, I find myself saying that a lot to people, like in business terms and stuff. Like, I go, like, I don't really need to achieve any more. So I'm quite happy with where I am at the moment. 
Like, so I just like to carry on talking about my, my hobby and writing books about it and stuff like that. Um, I would do it for free. Like, would, if you, I would your it, opinion change if you weren't successful and people were stealing your work? Would I feel differently about it? Um, it's hard to say. I don't know. Like, the, I think the difference is if you're able to do it. Like, so if I was earning enough money that I could kind of survive and pay my rent and stuff like that. But if I was struggling to get by and people stole my work and that maybe, maybe I, I lost out, I might think that might stop me from being able to, to carry on doing it. Mm. But I, I feel like there's a level that you reach where you go, okay, my rent's paid now, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you think, well, I'm not really that bothered about anything beyond that. Like, I do like the idea of reaching lots of people yeah. with books and stuff. So How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, I think 100,000 copies have been sold and it's been translated into about 15 languages, right? So yeah. I like the idea that loads of people find out about that and it introduces them to stoicism and stuff. Um, and Marcus Aurelius, like that's the best book on Marcus Aurelius that I've read that made me understand him properly, like made me really understand who he was as opposed to like, just read the meditations, yeah, class, like. Yeah, I think also Pierre Hadot's Inner Citadel, I think, is a really good book about Marcus Aurelius. There's like uh, that one as well. Um, there aren't that many books about Marcus Aurelius. Like, there are probably going to be more appear in the future, I think. But people speak, you know what I mean? People will say, like, I, I, I like Ryan Holding all, but they'll say, like, Marcus Aurelius. And it's like, okay, said that. But then it's like, that's it. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's good to quote him, but when you actually explain his upbringing and how we came here and did that, so it's the same with anything. Like, if you understand something from the core, you understand it more. Oh, do you know another reason that helps you to understand something, I think, and this is probably true of, of anything. Like, so you might get someone who's, say, a fitness instructor, and maybe they've just kind of, like, done some courses or read some books or articles or whatever, and they're kind of, like, you know, get on social media and they're talking about it. And then you might get someone who's actually coached, like, thousands of people over years and years and years, and they've got loads of experience and stuff. And, you know, so their understanding of it will come from the feedback that they get from their clients. And they'll go, not only do I know, like, what the articles say, but also know how people respond to it and mm. the obstacles they encounter and how they get past those and the kind of fears and the doubts and the stuff they have. Like, and so I think the thing that's helped me a lot in writing is years and years and years and years, like 25 years of giving talks and debating with people and doing therapy with clients. Do, one of the good things about doing therapy with clients, I'll sit with a client and we'll end up talking about CBT or maybe we'll talk about stoicism. And then they'll go, but I don't understand this bit, Donald, or that bit reminds me of this thing in Buddhism. Or, and I've had those conversations thousands of times, right? So then when I go to write a book, I go, I kind of know what the audience are going to say mm. because I've spoken to like thousands of them and we've kind of chatted about it and stuff like that. Like, so you kind of have a different level of understanding of the subject. And maybe, you have, I guess you have a sort of understanding of the audience in a way, because you've had loads of personal conversations with the type of people who are buying the, the books and things. And, and you've said, this is what the Stoics say. And they go, well, that sounds like bullshit to me, Donald. Or, you know, I don't really understand like how it would apply. And then you go, oh, okay. Like, and then you kind of have to kind of elaborate on things and give some examples. And then that allows you to understand how you would need to put it across if you were going to uh, present it in a book so that people would actually understand it and be able to relate to it, hopefully. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think it's true in regard to this business as well, like doing 
you know, knowing about counting macros and stuff like that for years and years and helping people, doing it at scale, literally tens of thousands of people doing macros and me doing check-ins, listening to what they're saying back, the results. And then you just go down like the female rabbit hole in terms of the menstrual cycle, how that impacts emotion and emotion impacts eating. Like you go, you understand so much more and you see the bros on Instagram, like calorie deficit. And you're like, yeah, mate, obviously like fucking hell. Okay. Calorie deficit, lose weight. Now let's talk about the individual person and their lifestyle and everything that goes into calories in versus calories out. There's a lot of stuff that happens and the questions come in, but yeah, so they'll just say, someone it's, it's, it's like saying someone someone saying like you know cognitive distancing it's like all right well okay like you like you did with the river example makes it a lot more sense like so yeah there's a lot of those online it's a shame really they make it hard for other people to understand like they just tell people they're like robots and like you just got to do this and that calorie deficit and that's it you will then yeah. it's always the way throughout history like because people will simplify things but you you get you understand things more deeply by actually talking to people about them a lot over years and years. Um, but then, you know, other people will just come and take that and then they'll teach it, but they'll, they'll make generalizations based on it. Like, they make other people in every subject throughout history, you know? Yeah, 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 it does. But yeah. So someone will go, but this works. If you do this, apparently that works. And you go, yeah, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you've got to like, adjust it a little bit. You only learn, learn that from actually doing it in practice. Yeah, exactly. It's the thing, it's, 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 it's actually hard for people on the other end or like, you know, the classic one is like, eat, chick, eat, eat, eat chicken and broccoli, whatever, you lose weight. Someone says, I'm not losing weight. And it's like, well, you're shit then, you're stupid. You're worthless. And then, yeah, that's just not good for psych. It's not good psychologically as a Donald. Those no. are the people that need help then. It they- makes you feel like you're a failure if people go, well, you're just not doing it properly, Scott. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I'm doing this thing that doesn't work. You're not doing it properly. Yeah, then you're like, like that, but they, you know, is there, what's that quote? Like, you know, like, is it like students only as good as his teacher or something like that? Like, if you don't understand all the possibilities, maybe like to help them, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. yeah. It's a good story about your book, 100,000 Fair Play. I think um, coming up to 10 now in UK time. So it's good. It's been, people are saying it's a school of life, Donald, the Donald School of Life. So I, I like it. We've gone, we're doing, we're less than four to six, so we've got more to come. Yeah. We've got more philosophy to come. And philosophy always was, like you said, the art of living. You know, it's about learning to, to deal with like the problems that we all face in life and dealing, overcoming our uh, problems with our emotions. And it, it's, you know, in a sense, it's fundamental to everything else that we do in life. Because our emotions of fear, anger, sadness potentially become barriers like, to everything else like, that we're trying to do in life. And, you know, in this case, we're talking about fitness and health and exercise, but anger, fear, and sadness can get in the way of that. Oh, like, so it's, it's something that we, we, you know, like we often need to look at addressing in any aspect of life. It's, it's general purpose stuff. My fundamental stuff and we'll get to more of i think next two weeks is like the world opening up so we can get into strategies for that and maybe with, uh, getting getting back out into the light like, Donald's co- yeah well, scott, so you'd be proud, scott you'd be proud of me do you know what i did the other day maybe i should have took a little video of this i wish yeah. i could show you it buddy 
Like I went, you know, I told you sometimes I jump rope. I could uh, take my little skipping rope with me. Or as yeah. we, we manly types call it jumping rope. Jumping not, rope. Not skipping. Skipping is what little, my little girl does. Like, I like to call it jumping rope. So it sounds better. But basically skipping. Like, so I do a lot of skipping. And I do it in my bedroom, Scott. I think that's part of the appeal of it, is I can just do it wherever I go. I just do it in my bedroom or whatever. I do it in a hotel room and stuff. And the other day I thought, do you know, it's really sunny in Athens. I'm going to go to the park and do it. Because the young guys are out there with bo- like pads, practicing their boxing and stuff and doing martial arts. And I'll go and jump my rope in the park for a wee while. And man, I must have done it about three times longer than normal, I think. Like, and it was, the view was amazing. I thought, I've never thought about this before, but you get a bit bored when you're staring at the wall, mm. right? And I thought, I'm looking at Mount Lucavetos and all these kind of cypress trees and stuff and the sun's blazing. I can feel the sun in my skin. I'm doing this, I'm like, this is like a million times better than doing it in my bedroom. Like, and I kind of, I don't want to go home. I want to just kind of like hang out here for a while and do it a bit longer. So it's not, like, I thought this is like the best gym in the world. Like just doing it out in the, in the park where people are walking their dogs and stuff. And uh, yeah, so I found that really kind of motivating. And I, I know it was interesting, interested me that I found that I exercised for a lot longer than I would normally. Well, uh, also as well, there's like, People watch that sensation. They're like, people are watching you, maybe. I can keep going. That could be coming into it. Uh, the view obviously is good. But time must have gone by. You were probably less focused on time, more focused on on the view. And then time just goes by. Thank you. And kind of enjoying the sunshine and stuff. And I was watching the guys were boxing in front of me. So I was kind of like, it's like, you know, normally I just stare at the wall, like watch my yeah. watch. I'm like, it's boring. And I was, I was watching these guys boxing. Like, and I'm like, okay, that's well, kind of entertaining, you know? Like, and I'm also, there's probably a little bit of me thinking I don't like to look rubbish at this. Like, I need to kind of, yeah. like, you know, keep going a little bit longer. Like, people should definitely exercise. Like, that's why people love running. Once you get past running, being like, you know, you're nearly dying and you can see the view when you go running, you will run places you won't usually go and you'll discover new paths and views and stuff. Do you know what, I, what I'd like to do next time for when I go jumping rope? There's a place we go and uh, this hill called uh, Turkavunia. Um, and there's like a little, pla- just a little plateau, like they've kind of paved it, got a bench on it. And it's got this epic view, like on the edge of the hill, it looks out across Athens. If I got there, climb up the hill, do my skipping, just stand there with this like massive, like scenic view across the whole city. Like that'd be pretty amazing. So That's you've got, I've got, I've got this idea now, like um, about, actually you know going outdoors and doing my exercise i never really thought about that before because i always thought of it as something i could do in hotel rooms and that was mm-hmm. the appeal to me i thought from traveling i don't need to go to the gym and stuff i just got my skipping rope out i can do it in my room and i think it's also because i lived in canada for a long time and i'd be like even if it's snowing outside like just yeah. skip my room or whatever and i'm like no it's better to be outside no and now i'm in the summer like <laughs> and you're in greece like come on yeah i know okay, i'm lucky because i'm in greece but I thought, well, I do, you know, I get much, a lot more enjoyment out of doing exercise when it's out in the open air. Yeah, 100%. It's a problem with home workouts at the moment is like, you know, you might think like some people got nice homes and some people like already no space to do home workouts. And it's sometimes it's miserable. It's hard. Like it's really hard. I, I like going, going to the gym in the, in the sun is amazing. You walk to the gym, it's sunny. The gym's got light coming in. There's definitely like a lot of psychological things going on, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's good to be out in the open air as well, like, you know, the sunshine, especially even while there's still some virus around and all that, like, you know, I get, as an alternative to going to a gym and stuff, like, it's nice if you can do things outdoors. Yeah. There's a lot you can do, and there's a lot you can do outdoors, like calisthenics and whatnot. You don't need any equipment. You can run, you can jump. Well, there's people mentioning you calves like two bricks, Scott. You've got calves like two bricks. Calves like two bricks. That's the only part of my entire body that's actually totally my two calf muscles are rock solid. And jumping I'm jealous. Out. I got no like, calf. Well, it wouldn't be. I mean, it's not really that. If I was wearing a skirt and high heels or something like that, it might, I might be able to show it off. But maybe, do you know, when I, next time I wear my kilt, <laughs> there you go. I'll be able to show everybody like my, my, my well toned calves. Like, they're pretty impressive for an old guy. I like like, well, the, people are asking you to change your Instagram to live like Donald. And I think you should live like that. It should be no, because that's not. Um, Alliterative. It should be like a, a dialect. Donald would be more like. <laughs> <laughs> Di- Do it. You're right. gonna have to get. You're gonna have to get your skipping rope out now, new and on the Instagram, on the old get the calves out. Jumping. I should jump my rope. Well, I don't really like. Do you do videos yourself? Then I guess it's your job, so that's okay. But sometimes, you know, hey, is it? Do, what's your opinion about this, Scott? I'm interested. Well, skipping rope, like about people kind of vanity posting videos of themselves doing yoga or exercise or whatever. Because I guess it's motivational. But, you know, like other people complain about it, don't they? Sometimes they're kind of like, oh, I'm sick of watching my friends doing their, like, you know, CrossFit or their yoga or whatever on their Facebook all the time. I personally don't post anything of me working out. But um, the people that do it with no business angle, I don't know. Like, it's, it's I think, what do you know what this is? Something interesting. I think it was a study on this. The girls who post like uh-huh. photos of them, like the, just their body, they see themselves like more of like an object, like as a as a human. Like they see themselves as something to put on, someone to like. As like, do you know what I mean? They like detaching themselves from the humanity. I can't remember the study, but it was interesting to see that point of view. I feel like maybe it's all things in moderation. I can see how it could really benefit somebody to do that. Kind of like me, I guess me going and, and skipping in the park if I'm around other people. Maybe it does motivate me and stuff. Like, if you posted if a video, like, if you mm-hmm. posted it, if you posted a video, you skip in, it would definitely motivate people because you've got like more to your life. Like you're done all this and you're skipping right. and you're doing some healthy. But even things. though I write books and stuff like that, I can also, even though I write books, I can also find time to skip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you too could be, but you know. It's, it's important. Like a lot of our members will post, you know, videos of them doing their workouts and it's good to see real i think the important thing is real life people posting themselves you know living so working out with their family i think all that stuff's beneficial if you're well, only maybe. posting if you only post like your abs every day like your ab workout every day it's like why what do you know the reason do you know why i've got a skipping rope scott it's so because I'm, I'm scott it's got to do with the fact that i'm scottish right yeah, why? Because I'm a bit, I'm a bit of a cheapskate, really, right? <laughs> money, like. Um, uh, I was gonna, I was when I was living in in Canada and it was snowing all the time. I thought I can't be bothered going to the gym in the blizzard, right? So I thought I'll buy a treadmill, I'll buy a running machine, and like, and then I start looking for the best one, and I'm like, Jesus, I could buy a car for the amount of money that it costs to buy a top of the range treadmill, right? <laughs> yeah, thousands and thousands of dollars, like. So I started Googling it. I was like, uh, what? 
how does the amount of calories that you burn on a treadmill compare to the calories that you burn jumping a rope? Like, yeah. right? similar. similar or more, like jumping rope. And I thought, but a treadmill I was looking at was five grand or something. And the skipping rope was 10 bucks. Like, and I thought, also when I go on holiday, I can't take the treadmill with me to my hotel room. Like, I'll just take the skipping rope with me. Like, stick in my bag. Boom, we're all like, and I thought I love things like that. I love simple, cheap things that you know you can just take with you. So skipping it takes a little while to get into it first. I got a lot of injuries actually at the beginning. I kept tearing my calf muscle or whatever. Like, but you know, I learned kind of like stretch a bit and stuff like that. And I, you know, I got more resilient because I was doing it more. And now I love I love the portability of it. So I just got like a little rope, you know, I stick it in my jacket pocket or whatever. You know, I'll go somewhere and just jump rope or whatever. You're going to be known in Athens soon as that crazy jump rope guy. Skipping that, philosopher. That, that crazy, yes, the skipping philosopher. You're in, you're in. That's your new Instagram handle. Uh-huh. Skip, you know what? Boxing, boxers, martial artists, all skipping, being light on their feet. I think it's important that to, to skip just because being able to bounce if you feel you feel more alive. A lot of people can't even, you know, walk a mile. They're like, oh, dying, which is fine. Like, mm-hmm. you know, build it up. To be able to bounce, to be able to, you, you can probably bounce about, I just, you just feel good in yourself because you know, like, you're just nimble. It's weird, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to explain to people, but when you feel nimble and fit, like running fit, skipping fit, it's good. It's good. It's, it's better fun. than being able to bench 200k. Uh-huh. Better feeling because it's your body, it's, you're in tune with your body. So, yeah. <laughs> I think like um, yeah, and like you know, being in tune with your body, I think you get you also get that from yoga and things like that. I like doing callus. I used to when I was a young guy, I used to lift weights, like and uh, a lot, like you know, like a long, long, long time ago. But I stopped doing it because I got a bit bored, like with the repetition of it after like three or four years or whatever. Yeah, like, um, I, spent, I used to go to the gym every night. It was in the night, the gym, like you know, four or five nights a week. And uh, after a while, after a few years, I was like, oh, I'm a little bit bored with this now. But the thing, the only thing that makes a repetitive exercise, I think, tolerable over the long term is the social as- aspect. So I was training with a bunch of my friends, like, and uh, I thought, as long as they're around, then I don't really mind just like doing the same bench press over and over again, like, because uh, then I can chat to them and stuff like. And it seems like there's a bit of camaraderie and stuff. But yeah, it's, it's harder to do monotonous exercise over the long term on your own. That yeah, it's it, 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 a battle. Like, and that's why I think like um, a lot of people give up weightlifting. But there's a study, mind, there's studies on weightlifting um, on health and stuff that would it's definitely make you maybe change your mind to add it back in. Loads oh, of no, a, I know, like from looking at the research a little bit, you know, it's one of the most reliable forms of exercise. Right. Well, it's been shown to slow down and Alzheimer's and dementia and to a, to a, after six months of doing it, the study was on, on people much older and the, 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 the results were held on for two years later. I think what it makes people do is it makes you, if you're lifting weights, you have to connect your mind to the muscle. Like you have to have those pathways fire up because you, you're using the muscle. Do you know what I mean? And you might go through your life. Some people go through their life not even using the muscles, they're just walking about, eating. There's like there's there's nothing going on. So it's not it's not it's not good. 
but if you can get your body to start using the muscles and like strengthen them, I think it goes, and then bone health as well, massive. But you're doing, I'm skipping. Skipping's tough, it's tough to keep going. It takes a wee while to get into it. Yeah. I, That's the issue with skipping. You need to get confident in not tripping up all the time. Yeah, like, cause the, so the first time you do it, you're like, did it, did it, up. And then you go, oh, maybe pull the muscle a little bit. Like, so, you know, it's hard, like, at first to kind of get into it. Um, but uh, once you've got into the habit of it, then it's like, it seems really convenient to do. Are you, uh, do, you, do you feel like it's like a meditative thing for you now? Yeah, like, totally. Like, it becomes like a little meditation. Yeah. You know? Um, that's a common thing to happen it's rhythm it's like it's very rhythmical it's like it's overwhelming it's dun, 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 dun. and you kind of need to pay attention to the rhythm like because if you feel like playing it's not do you know what i feel it's like i feel like it's a lot like playing a musical instrument like it would be ah it'd be like being a drummer like so when you're skipping you have to keep time like because if you get out of rhythm you trip on the rope right like, and that's when you kind of stumble or whatever, is I know when you stop paying attention to the do, 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 do. Like, when the rope hits the floor and you're like, and jumping in time to it, like, if you kind of mind wanders for a minute, then you're like, like, trip. So you have to be really focused on the bum, 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 like, keeping the rhythm. Um, be present. Like being a drummer or a bass, like being the, I feel like it's like being the bass player. <laughs> Not uh, Freddie Mercury's in the front and you're there just skipping away on the drums. It's good. Yeah. It's, good. it's good for like, it's good for loads of stuff like um, coordination and stuff as well. I think a lot of people are very uncoordinated, isn't they? Do you know, you're saying it's like meditation to you. How long did it take you to get skipping fluid, fluidity and skipping? Oh man, it took me, you know what? It took me a really long time. How long is that? I don't know, like maybe... To, well, even just to be able to do it, I probably put to me like maybe sit like practicing every day for like a few, two, like two or three weeks or more before I, I wasn't just completely rubbish at it. And in months before I stopped pulling muscles, I kept kind of pulling my calf muscle, which I don't ever get injuries now for some reason. Like I don't even stretch as much anymore, but like I guess my body's just more used to it. Um, so it took me to, to really kind of get more into it. It took me, I'll tell you what I did. You wouldn't believe this because I'm not, I wouldn't pretend that I'm in particularly good shape and stuff. But when I came to Athens a couple of years ago, I was here for a couple of months and I went, okay, I've got some time in my hands. I'm going to do some crazy intensive thing. So I thought for an experiment, I'm going to do about 20 minutes of exercise twice a day and I went I just got out my patio so I jumped rope for like two or three minutes and then I'd like do press-ups or set-ups or whatever and then I jumped rope for another two or three minutes and then do press-ups or whatever like I did that twice a day and I'd fast every second day so like I'd only eat every two days like for about six weeks or something like that like just to see if I could do it but like you know after a while I was like Kind of in the routine of doing this now like i wanted to see if i could because fa- i find fasting quite easy in fact i'm fasting today like we usually fast every monday and uh, and now i do this one meal a day thing as well where i just eat lunch and that's it like, like the thing with that is as well as like it's the same with people with like we're really into sugar and chocolates is like 
once you stop eating chocolates and stuff like a week or two, you start realizing you don't you don't actually want it. So it's like cutting that, it's like cutting that cord. Don't eat it, and you can start. I've never really been interested in in snacks and things like that. So okay, again, everyone's kind of like different. I guess I've got a slow metabolism or something like that. I don't I don't really get hungry for quite a long time. And uh, like if I ate more than one meal a day, I'd feel like really overfull. Now I think I'm kind of like you know I'm just. Yeah, but guarantee you have, you probably feel, you're probably like, so most people will feel slight hunger and take that as like a ding, like I have to eat and feel yeah, angry. You have to get used to that slight hunger. Like you can't just like live always like eating as soon as that comes. That's exactly what Socrates says is that, you know, you need to get used to like the feeling and not like that's what he means in part by moderation. You don't always have to act on it like you should eat what's healthy you know not just eat like whenever you feel hungry um in particular as we talked about before like he says also some foods are designed to tantalize you when you're not even hungry so you think oh i'm kind of full up but that pudding looks really good like or you walk past a shop and you see kind of like something that looks tasty but you're not really that hungry but you have it anyway because it looks like it would taste nice and so he says you've got to be watchful about foods that tempt you or drink that tempts you when you're not thirsty or food that tempts you when you're not actually hungry like it's a really easy way to fall into overeating yeah. uh, even in Greece they thought that there's something strange about this like food that people want to eat when they're not hungry because it looks nice it's just there's a craving nice. isn't it craving and hunger different things yeah mm-hmm. craving is definitely not the same thing they, they can overlap like but they're not the same thing and that's the confusion people have. Like, I'm craving that. Yeah, you're hungry, no, craving it. I, I think know, like, was... I'm not a good role model but for these things, but, like, I do have all these weird little stoic habits. Like, I take a cold shower every morning, and, yeah. uh, and I like to do sort of calisthenic-type stuff because I like the minimalism of it. So I like the freedom and stuff of not having any equipment, really, apart from a rope and, the, like, the gym and all that. So I kind of think I like, I'd rather just be able to do stuff all on my own like wherever I go, like, um, and um, I drink um, water with like a, just a couple of drops of vinegar in it. Like, cause I realized- That's disgusting, isn't it? Hmm? Is it? No, it's nice. You never <laughs> have to. What do you mean it's nice? It's lovely, that's what the Roman legionaries drank. They carry vinegar with them and they put it. But, and they're smart. The reason is that if you drink water on its own, it doesn't taste of anything. So you have a couple of sips and then you kind of forget to drink it almost. Like you've got to go keep reminding yourself, I'll drink this thing that doesn't taste of anything, right? But if it's got like a couple of drops of water, it's kind of, because it's got a flavor, like you, you kind of more likely to keep going back to it, I find. My yeah, friends told me- We got squash that. now. Squash. Yeah, by the way, drinks, like, you know, I don't need the, like, we've evolved too many calories and acid and stuff. Like, I'll just drink water, like, a little, little drop of vinegar in it, honestly, buddy. But the trick is, you've got to use the right type of vinegar. Not mm-hmm. that cheap, like, not Welsh vinegar, right? <laughs> malt. Uh, What's, what is it? What is the malt thing you got? What is it? Like, from the fish and chip shop. <laughs> like, just put like a, a little drop of balsamic vinegar in it, like just like two or three drops of balsamic vinegar, like, and it doesn't taste vinegary. It just kind of like gives it a lot. But you could put, I'd put like just 
to like a couple of drops of fruit juice you can put in your water. Or I guess people put like cucumber in and, you know, a slice of orange and all like to flavor the water a little bit. I hate vinegar, see? You don't like it? No. But you don't, do you not have it in your fish and chips? No, just salt, loads of salt. Really? Yeah. Just all the salt. I love salt. I think salt is one of the best things. I think salt is like got a bad rep. Like, you know, obviously moderation is good. Uh, but loads of people will like not eat salt. It's like you need salt for muscle contraction and stuff. You feel terrible if you don't have enough salt, especially when you exercise. What you was we'll finish in a second because I think you'll have some words of wisdom, maybe you know, from a fitness angle, it's different. So people are saying in the week, I'm good with my nutrition, I'm good. Weekend comes, or I'm just eating desserts, you know, or a habit. I'm going off plan. As soon as that Friday night hits, the, everything changes. How my typical advice is see every day like as a day. Like you we've made up Saturday and Sunday, and you know, we've made it up. Shouldn't this just a day? Stop like, you know, but I think people are boxing themselves into like, I have to do this in the weekend because it's a weekend. Well, what I'm gonna say is maybe. All right, let's start with strategy, high-level philosophy of life stuff, right? So when you're trying to change habits or behavior in psychotherapy, behavior therapy, it doesn't matter what you're doing. That could be anything, right? Any type of behavior change. So the, the paradox, there's a deep paradox about it, which is that often... You, when people are trying to change a behavior, they, they lack sufficient motivation to do it in the face of high levels of temptation, trigger situations and stuff like that. So I'm all right until this situation happens. And then I don't kind of have the, the discipline or the motivation or whatever to kind of persevere with it. And often it's because they're trying to change the habit for the wrong reasons, right? Seemed a stronger reason, a different reason, a bigger reason. So when I was working with clients, I used to do smoking cessation. And for instance, when people are quitting smoking, one of the things I'd always say to them is that, you know, we'll talk about cigarettes and, you know, techniques and all the other stuff, like many different tactics and strategies. But then towards the end of the session, I'd say, I'll let you in a secret. And I'd be like, what's that dog? I'd say, it's not really about cigarettes. I bigger than that. Right, quitting smoking. It's not. It's not really about cigarettes. Like it's about something much deeper. Like it's about the type of person that you are. Like it's about whether you want to be the type of person that continues smoking, or whether you want to be the type of person that used to smoke and then managed to quit, like and has now moved on. Like, and what the difference is between those two versions of yourself, it's about your character. It's not about the thing. It's not even about your physical health. Like, it, those are factors, they matter, but more fundamentally, it's about character. It's about the type of person that you want to be in life. And so like, there are two reasons for that. Like, one is that basing things on your character is in a number of ways we know more powerful in terms of motivating behavior. It's more robust. Um, it has other advantages. Like if you're trying to motivate yourself because of the future, the future is always uncertain. 
So you could say, oh, I'm doing exercise in order to kind of to fit, to lose weight or whatever. But then it's easy to go, well, well, just slacking one day won't really matter. Like, because it's kind of distant long-term goal or whatever. But if it's more about self-discipline, you go, I want to be the type of person that's got that self-discipline. That I want to be a driven, motivated person that cares about their health and looks after themselves. Like, then, you know, you need to stick with that every day. Like, you're failing to be that person one day if you quit or black backslide, you know, you give in to it. So, so focusing too much on external goals, it's easy to kind of cheat, like take days off, find excuses. If you focus more on your character, you'll tend to be more consistent. It's more in the here and now. It's more immediate, right? But it also has wider implications. So somebody that quits smoking is potentially going to be more skilled and self-confident about managing their behavior in general. Like somebody who uh, manages to eat in moderation or to sacrifice unhealthy foods from their diet is going to be more skilled and more confident about exercising self-discipline at work uh, in the role as a parent and in other areas of their life. So you're developing high-level cognitive skills that are generalizable, to put it in more technical terms, right? So it's not just it's not just about the cheesy watsits, right? It's not just about the cream cakes, right? It's bigger than that. It's about you. It's about your personality. It's about the type of person that you are in life and the skills that would apply across the board. So number one, those skills will generalize and apply to life in general, right? And number two, if you have kids, like, or someone else in your life that you care about, uh, it's also about modeling the character traits that you want someone else to perceive in you. Like, so, you know, if you kind of think, oh, I wish my kids didn't eat cheesy watsits all the time. You know what you should do? Stop eating cheesy watsits yourself, yeah. right? Like, you need to become the change that you want to see in the world. Like, you know, lead by example. Like, so it's number one and number two. Number one is it will apply to other situations. Number two, it's going to have an impact on your relationships, like the way that other people perceive you. Like, so the focus, you know, your motivation will be more consistent if it's more character-based. Like it gets yeah. to Friday, it doesn't matter if it's Friday. What difference does it make what day of the week it is? Like if you lack self-discipline on Friday night, you're going to be lacking, you know, you every time you, you give in, if you think, I know this is unhealthy, but I'm going to do it anyway, you're strengthening a bad habit. And Saturday morning, you're going to be a little bit more vulnerable to backsliding Sunday morning as well. Like, and that's also, you know, when you think about it that way, you think by doing this, by eating this cheesy what's it, right? Am I strengthening the good habit or am I strengthening the bad habit? Like, and you go, well, just one doesn't matter. Well, like, yeah, but it strengthens the bad habit. So tomorrow it's going to be even harder for me not to eat cheesy what's it's like, because I had this one, you know, it's not just about this one. It's about my character in the long term and in general. But type of person that I am, like, and maybe it wouldn't matter if I just had one cheesy what's it, but you know, because I really want it, like, and yet I'm able to kind of flush it down the toilet or feed it to the dog, like, that means that tomorrow, like, 
when I need to exercise self-discipline, I'm going to find it easier because I set a precedent and I've strengthened those muscles in my character and my mind. Like I'm better at being self-disciplined in general now. Like, whereas every time you make an excuse, you weaken your ability to exercise self-control. Like, so it's really, you need to think of it more in terms of the effect it's having on your character traits. Yeah, 100%. I think, uh, I think a personal example is like opting for Deliveroo on the weekends and not going like, do I really want to be this person that just goes straight to Deliveroo, spends three times the amount of money because I'm lazy, because I don't want to go to the shop to get food to prepare it. It's for me. And that's like something about that's what that would go on to every that would go into work as well. Like, do you want to just do the shortcut? You know off? this thing about making food and all that, like, it takes me far less time to make a salad, right? And you should see my salads, Scott. They're elaborate. Like, I would describe. Get them on the Instagram. Get them on Instagram after your skipping video. Okay. I'll send you some of my recipes and stuff. We've got stoic soup. That's what you know. Do you know I've got we did a I did a live stoic soup session once on Facebook Live where we made stoic soup. People all around the world were making it. Like, <laughs> an ancient recipe for soup. We'll send you it. Got does cumin seasoning and stuff like does it have leaks? Uh, any leaks? Hmm? Any leaks? It might, I think maybe it does have leaks, not the Romans had leaks. Like, yeah, you stole it from the Welsh. Yeah, I probably stole oh, it from the Welsh. God. Like, I'll show you my stoic soup recipe. But it takes me far less time because also if you do something a lot, I made salad the other day and Lalia's like, Jesus, how did you manage to make that so quickly? Because like, I make it every day. Like, I'm like, chuk, 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 like, doing like two things at once. Like, so once you make something a lot, you're kind of like, oh, I'm really good at doing this. It takes me a fraction of the time to make that that it would take me to go and order, take away and wait for it. And, like, and it mm. costs me nothing. Like It's peanuts. You know, just chop up a lettuce, you know, like chop up, uh, put some olives and whatnot in it. Like it's easy. Like, and uh, the time flies by. And while I'm doing it, do you know, I'm on my audio book. I'm a big, big fan of audio books, Scott, as you should be too. Because you have arms and legs when you're listening to your audio book. You can be moving your, you can be doing your skipping. Like, while I'm making my salad, I'm, I'm listening to Julius Caesar's Conquest of Gaul. Like, that's my audiobook at the moment. Like, like, so like get the barbarians. <laughs> like, I listened to you. I was listening to your audiobook actually when I was, uh, I remember I, the thing with audio, you remember where you are when you listen. I was listening to yours, sunbathing in, in, in Nice, in, in France. Really? Yeah. So when I think of your book, I think, oh, that sun lounger in Nice when I was on the I'm beach. Back. But you're thinking, Crushing veg. I'm thinking of chopping Ju up. Julius Caesar yeah. and you're crushing veg. But that's a good thing. Like, that's what you call habit stacking as well, isn't it? Where you just do something and add something else to it as beneficial, happy days. Mm -hmm. Like listening to what we chat, it's a long one. But if you do it whilst cooking Donald's stoic soup. I'll send you the stoic soup recipe. Yes. Like healthy and nutritious. Like, you'll be surprised how well stoics eat. Like, it's just a veg it's vegetable soup. How you make it in a crock pot? Have you got a crock pot, Scott? Like a slow cooker? Don, are you speaking to the wrong... I'm going to improve my cooking skills. I don't have one, but I'll get one. You can't, it's impossible to burn anything because it cooks it on a low temperature for a long time. You just do it, and then you bugger off and leave it. Like, it can buy it, like, eight hours later or whatever. It's all, like, it's just, like... So you do, so you do this every day? 
not every day. I make salad every day, every single day. Uh, I used to make Greek salad, Cretan dacos, like a Greek uh, thing I used to make every day. And then I stopped eating carbs or I stopped eating as many carbs. So it's made from a, a Cretan rusk, like, and it has, you chop the tomatoes really fine and like uh, some olive oil, you crumble some feta on top and some olives, some sun-dried tomatoes on this uh, twice paxmadia, like twice baked bread, like a hard bread. Like, I can make that. And this is controversial, Scott, but my uh, dacos is better than any other dacos that I've ever had in Greece. And that's you know short. Like, I'll get in trouble for saying that. I'm seeing uh, the Donald, the the stoic cook influencer shining through at the moment. I think your true, your true calling isn't writing books. It's doing recipes. Do recipes. Lalia, Lalia made lentil soup the other day as well. Like, you know, she does a lot of cooking. So, yeah, I mean, during lockdown, you've got opportunities. It's amazing how cheap it is, you know, especially in a... I used to live in Toronto. It's an expensive city. You go out for a meal and it's like 100 bucks for two people. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can make a meal for like five bucks, you know, like especially if it's winter vegetables or something like Stoic soup is dark. Stoic soup is ridiculously cheap. Leek lentils like i bet even in britain you can make it for less than five quid yeah should do for like and it would last for like a whole week or whatever you just make a huge pot of it you've got me into soup scott i used to make the dog food like i'd go and get liver and heart and all that chop it up and i'd make it in the crock pot for the dog you are you are a chef yeah i'd cook food for the dog i can all the offal and stuff and uh, it's much healthier than the rubbish that you get in tins and all that. True, it's true. I think uh, this is this is great. This is. I need you to send me all the stuff. I'm gonna I'm gonna get a, I'm gonna get Louise to do a video of her doing it, and we're gonna say this is Donald's stoic soup. Stoic, stoic soup. Stoic soup. It's nice. You've got well, uh, you got to put vinegar in it though, Scott. Oh, fucking hell! You do it once it's cooked. Just put a little bit. Honestly, buddy, like a little bit of red wine vinegar. Like hey, red wine. Red wine vinegar, not like, no, honestly, not your Welsh vinegar. Like, just like, you know, like a nice bit, a nice little bit of expensive vinegar on the, on the end, give it a little bit more flavour. You don't have to, but, and a bit of nice olive oil. Oh, yeah. You like oh, olive oil? Oh. like olives, but olive oil, maybe. Olive oil, yeah, olive oil. Lentils, oh. leeks, carrot, you know, that's about it, really, maybe. A couple and, of I need to get a crock, and I need to get a crock pot, yeah. You can just cook it in a normal pot, just put it on a low heat and leave it for longer. All the flavors will blend, you know. Or you could crock pots are dirt cheap, like you can probably buy them for like 20 or 30 bucks or whatever. A uh, cheap one, and then you, you, you know, the thing about crock pot is that you can't burn the food, so you, you make a big thing of whatever, and then you kind of set it up in the morning, or you could do it overnight and then you just leave it, and then you come back the next day and you go, oh, it cooked really slowly, like it's already now. And you can make a big quantity of food for your whole family, or you make a load of it and you put it in little Tupperware things and freeze it or whatever, and then it's your meals for the week or whatever. And it costs, you know, potentially, it's really cheap as well, man. I think people waste so much money on pre like prepared foods. Like some of the most unhealthy foods you can buy, like are the most expensive. Like, and you can buy, you know, there's certain, if you know how to shop around and stuff, like certain types of food you can get ridiculously cheap. 
especially like where I am at the moment, I'm lucky in Greece. There's a wee guy that will sit in the end of the street and sell you a whole bag of red onions, like a carrier bag full of red onions for one euro. Or like they'll sell you a bag of potatoes, one euro or whatever, the markets and stuff here. Like, there's a guy. There's a there's a guy in Cardiff on the stalls. He sells one pound fish, and he does a song on it. One pound fish. Saw so. that on the internet. One, one pound fish. <laughs> one pound. One pound soup. Very very good. Donald soup. Stoic That's soup. That's famous. Like, we'll see who can make the cheapest version of Stoic soup. Like, could you make it for like under two quid or something like that? Maybe. I guess if you grow your own. Oh, when I was a kid, when I was at university, I knew this guy that was a Buddhist. And I, I kind of stayed in his house like for a few days once. And he had a load of tomato plants growing in his house. And he worked for the Forestry Commission. And he'd go, he'd pick mushrooms, like edible mushrooms. He'd bring them home. And he, he'd fry the mushrooms with tomatoes that he grew in his living room. Just put a little bit of soy sauce on it. Like, and goes, this is what I eat pretty much every day. Like mushrooms and, and tomatoes. This is like my main thing. It's just gonna cost him a penny. Nothing. Cost zero he, money. Zero monies. Is he still alive? What? <laughs> he died. No, he died. <laughs> is he dead? Right <laughs> <laughs> on skin. Like, I think he's still. I haven't seen him for a long time. He's probably gone. Was, this guy like literally spends zero money on food. That's insane. Right. Most of the people are saying no. Most they spend most of the money on food. I think it's true. Like ridiculous. Ridiculous. Like, like, so the stupid amount of money that you can spend on food, and you know potentially, but you figure out what things are cheap. Like I think in Britain, winter vet like potatoes, carrots, and onions, and things, and leeks are really expensive. They're uh, really cheap, aren't they? Normally, like, and so if you can make you know meals with like uh, things that happen to be cheap at the time, it's like it's crazy, like how you know much money you can potentially save. Oh, I go to Sainsbury's right every day when I spark. I, I order muscle for I go to Sainsbury's every day. The small one in London, so it's always expensive. Always like 20 quid, 25 quid. And I get literally a small bag of stuff, some fruit that's overpriced, and some like you know, Coke Zero and stuff, and you leave with the you with nothing for 20 quid. It's mental. Like you just gotta put the effort in to go and buy. In bulk or from a good place. Oh, tell anybody. Vinegar water. Hey, I'll, hey. <laughs> honestly. Coxie, I, honestly. Your kidneys will explode. Hey. I'd rather starve to death than uh, I drink Coxie as well. But like yeah. Sweeteners. Coxie was not there's the artificial sweeteners got bad rap. But... There's two types though. If you've got the Coxie, do you in Britain do you have the green cola? Like oh, don't, don't give it a Half bullshit drink, half sugar, half sweetener. Like, what are you doing, Coke? What are you up to? Is it sugar? I thought it was just stevia that was in it or whatever. I thought, I think it's half sweetener, half sugar. Do you know Coke Zero is called Bloke Coke? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. that it's aimed for men. It's black branding and the other Coke, Diet it's Coke. the same as, like, uh, Diet Coke, but pretty similar to Diet Coke, but it's aimed at men because they said men don't like buying things that are labelled as diet. True, it's true. And actually, it tastes different. Can I ask you a question, Scott, about food and nutrition? Yeah. You know how you get these energy drinks? Yeah. Right? And they say, like, high energy, like, look as AIDS, an energy drink, right? What's the difference between high energy and high calorie? 
Um, high energy, well, it's carbohydrates is where you get energy from. So those leukosy, yeah, high calorie is like would could be from fat, protein, carbs. High energy is usually caffeine plus sugars. Um, leukosid is glucose. It's literally just glucose. Calories. Hmm? It's just calories. It's got loads of calories in it. Yeah, it's got loads of calories, but it's all from glucose. So it's good. It's good. Make teeth fall out. Huh? Makes all your teeth fall out. <laughs> yeah, well, you know the original Lucasaid, you know, the one people who starve after a night out or like hangover, yeah. the original Lucasaid. Do you that, remember people when someone was sick in the hospital for you, then at some point they stopped doing this, right? But, <laughs> Whenever anyone was in the hospital, they used to give you a bottle of Lucozade and some grapes. Oh, my God. What's the science behind that? Like, obviously, giving someone some energy, a.k.a. carbs in sugar form, is going to give them a bit of a, give them a bit of a jolt. But grapes as well. Grapes, honestly. If you eat too many grapes, my stomach's in in bits. I don't know if you need an energy drink if you're just lying in bed all day. No, you don't. You don't. It doesn't make sense. Most energy drinks are caffeine strong like you look at uh, monster energy and stuff some of them have got zero calories so they've got 200 milligrams of caffeine taurine um some other bits and bobs and obviously it's just caffeine caffeine yeah. is like a miracle drug mind caffeine is like if i think if did the stoics come across caffeine at any point do they have any coffee they would have they would have loved it it would have changed rome think about the world donald it is run on caffeine Every single person wakes up coffee. They have to have coffee. They gotta go start. Oh, like people work in IT, you just like drink gallons. It's, it's coffee, and then, you know, cocaine. When it was the the plant, the Mexico, the plant. I don't know if this story is true, but someone went to visit them. These farmers eating the coca leaves where the cocaine comes from. You know, how are the workers working so hard all day? Like, yeah, they they eat this leaf this leaf or whatever it was, a plant. And then after like a few months, they were like, yeah, they're getting ill. They got all of them getting like massive headaches and stuff. It's like, they were literally just fucking eating the plant the cocaine comes from and he's giving them like obviously energy, but the cocaine on the streets is like that times a hundred. Yeah. Like, like half right. We love- He used to inject it. Who? Freud. Well, inject cocaine. Yeah. Like, because it, it was originally used in medicine as a local anaesthetic. Like, so they used it for eye operations. Yeah, what? Freud, like, it's a local anaesthetic, right? So they used it um, in surgery and Freud started injecting it. And he thought, this is, this stuff's amazing. Like, and there's letters by him. I'll show you, Scott. I'll show you. There's a letter by Freud where he writes a letter to his wife and he says, I'm going to ravage you like a wild man because I've been <laughs> injecting this cocaine stuff. Like, and it's amazing. And he goes, I'm prescribing it to all of my patients. Like, it's oh like, my days. Spread. and he's really, really raving about it. And then a couple of years later, he kind of realized that it was a bad idea. And like his, his patients were all addicts now and stuff. And he, he backtracked on it. Well, do you know what's funny? And I'll send you it. Someone's, done a, someone's started doing a study on analyzing philosophers and stuff. How they write and analyzing into the drug they were usually on. So a lot of people, they're, they're linking people's writing to cocaine. It's like this guy's writing is similar to other people's writing on cocaine. Yeah. This guy was on another drug and they're actually starting to connect them. 
Because you think some people come up with like, how did this guy come up with this really cool concept? Well, it might have been high and it just came out. So well, I spoke to you earlier about the Eleusinian mysteries. And so people were initiated into this mystery religion. And like, uh, we know now that the, I mean, Demeter, one of our symbols is a poppy. And like uh, the, the Romans and the Greeks had opium, right? And they also had other weird drugs. Like, so they, there's this um, fungus called ergot that causes hallucinations and stuff. And they found traces of that in the Alicinian, uh, the grounds of the Alicinian temple. So they, like, they believed that they were taking these hallucinogens when they were going through the uh, initiation ceremonies and uh, kind of like seeing spirits and crazy stuff. And, you know, and then they were coming out of it thinking, yeah, maybe, you know, like- I did see God. Yeah. Well, they weren't lying. They were seeing that crazy shit, but they just didn't know it was like, you know, like a drug doing it. They actually thought they were going to another world. So, you know, that's the thing. Like, I think a lot of religion is that, I mind. I can't, there's a book on it, it's called um, Stealing Fire by a guy called Stephen Kotler. It talks about going into a flow state. And he talks about like all these drugs, like LSD, stuff like that. And he talks about like back in the day, the religious people would, would have this elixir they would drink and they would like forbid anyone else from drinking it because it would make them high and they would go on these fucking trips come back and be like you never believe i just spoke to god mate and they'd be like fucking hell class but then they, apparently you know the bush where moses was speaking to a bush apparently yeah. there's a plant there that's hallucinating plant so maybe he was just the bush was on fire fumes going into his nose he thought the bush was talking to him which it was yeah. but it was just he was high yeah, there's a lot of evidence for that in different aspects of the ancient world. Like we talked before about the Delphic Oracle, which gave those pronouncements. Like in Delphi, there are cracks in the ground through which these fumes like rise up, vapors that supposedly like toxic fumes are probably killing her, but they're also making her hallucinate and stuff. It's believed. Well, Moses just high air. I think a lot of it comes down to it. It's just like Fucking just now we know what it's doing to us. But yeah, maybe next episode, Donald gets high on LSD, cocaine. Next, next time we'll make soup and we'll like we'll we'll like you know take LSD and we'll talk about uh, Plato's theory of forms or something. We'll get a cocaine laced straight into your eyeball. Yeah. And, um, I'll get some magic mushrooms on the go, and then uh-huh. everybody Good. else do we want? Um, class. <laughs> Let's do it. Well, Donald, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for the philosophical lessons we're getting off Donald, which is great. Yeah, thanks, uh, we'll be back in session next week. Yeah. Donald, high analysis, making soup. Bye, everybody. Get on it. See you guys. Ta-da, ta-da.